0: Welcome to the NotaCast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brennabepish,
1: and I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Pork Quentin.
0: And welcome to the 142nd episode of the Cast titled "Burning Bridges: An Analysis of a Clash of Kings, Sansa 6. And Tyrion 14, in which Tyrion charges headfirst into hell, and Sansa wishes she could join him just to get away from Cersei. So who has the worst deal, Sansa or Tyrion? I guess Tyrion, right? You would have the worst deal in these two chapters, right?
1: Difficult to say. Obviously, wildfire is bad, the horrors of war, (laughs) getting your face slashed open by someone you thought was your guardian. These things are all bad, but drinking with Cersei, I don't know. I think the scales might be even here, Jeff. It's difficult for me to say.
0: It's who can say for, for sure, but yes, it's, um, I would, I would drink with Cersei. She would, she'd would be, she'd be fun for about the first half hour. And then after you that, you know,
1: in like, peacetime, if she didn't have a specific <laughs> reason to want you dead, I could see that being a fun time.
0: As always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Timbob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the Ship that Stalks the Seven Seas, and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Trident Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Arch Spacer Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the quilled lion, War of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Baneford, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar, Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorn, Kelly, Worthy East Bishop of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Entry Gent, True Master of Bainford, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite Stain, and Bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Halliver, the Waiter for Tee A.A. Ron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Vanaris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devontae the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of Teenage Mutant Turtles. Just love that long-ass title. Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Gorgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils where an every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, Dayne, and Prince Rhaegar, Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way, Lord Charles Torell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Bander, Defender of the Marches, the High Marshal of the Reach, Lord of the South and the Heir of House Torell, Luke, Lord of Loneleaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel-Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and Patron of Free, Wheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, and our newest member of the Small Council. God, it feels good to say that. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official Ice Master and Deliverer, the valiant, pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and prince Concert to his ginger sweet love Queen Anna, or Anna. There we go. She's actually told me to pronounce it for Anna, so... Christoph, this was a gift from Queen Anna. There we go, got the name right that time. So, give her a big thanks and a hug her, from from you to her for for that title and uh, patrons as well. Thank you to all of our all of our small counselors and welcome to Lord Christoph and Queen Anna.
1: Thank you to all our patrons as always, and special thanks to Lord Christoph and Queen Anna. May you reign forever.
0: Hmm, I hope they do rave forever. They're, they seem so sweet and, and, and lovely. Our oh, spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, three, dun- three Duncan Egg novels, histories, interviews, the wins of winners, sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from Hunding, Master of Guest Rite, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, I have a question. I don't believe it would be in character for Shay to obediently sit staring at the wall for the long days and weeks when she's off screen in A Clash of Kings. The appearance of Simon Silvertongue in her manse is one of the few glimpses we are given that she has a mind of her own, outside Tyrion's POV. What side hustles does she have going on? Does she already have a fat stack of Lannister gold, and where does she keep it? What's her long-term exit strategy? I would like to see an Odd Couple spinoff with Shay and Chella finding creative ways to make money without <laughs> Tyrion or Varus noticing, and this would give an interesting view into King's Landing's small folk and merchant classes under the Lannister regime. Thanks for the t-shirt, and for shipping all the way to the UK. Hunting, Master of Guest Right so what do you think of that, Jeff? What is uh what does Shay get up to on the side, do you think? Like day to day, you know. Tyr- you know, even Tyrion isn't horny all of that often. And he so doesn't they're... see
0: her that often either, right? Because he has right, to like it's... stay away right. from her to keep her safe and alive. So he has to like really go out of his way in order to get out to the uh to the manse that he has set up for her earlier in the Clash of Kings, and then when she becomes uh a, a part of Oh god, I just Lady Stokeborg, there we go. Lady is entourage and uh and so forth. We he doesn't get to see her that much either. And then we only have that one scene from a storm of swords where Varas brings her up through the uh, the tunnels and things like that, which uh, is uh, is something that we're so again like their 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 interactions are, are are quite sparse. That's true. Uh, day, day to day. I mean, like right now. So where we are right now at the Battle of the Blackwater, Shay is primarily attending lollies. I mean, we we see her trying to get lollies across the dry moat to to Mager's Holdfast. And that seems to be what she's doing now. Now, if you go back a little bit in time, when she's in the manse with she, with Chela and the Black Ears, and Vara shows up, and all that kind of entourage, I mean, I don't know. Like, is is is, is it a, is it a rude thing to say? Where like George probably doesn't care enough, like care what Shay True. is doing because like he's Shay is just a. And this 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 sounds really shitty because I think Shay ended up being a better character in Game of Thrones, the TV series, as opposed to A Song of Ice and Fire, the book series. Because Shay like, has, like, real emotions and personalities, whereas in the books, like, Shay is primarily, like, something that Tyrion is bouncing off of. Like, Tyrion's revealing his own... Like, she, like she's not necessarily a mirror for Tyrion, but she's almost like a, like a racquetball, like the wall of a racquetball. Yeah, that's like, a good
1: way of putting it. I like slapping that. Slapping yeah,
0: mean, his own... Yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I think you're right. Like, this is, you know, this sounds brutal, but this is, I think, how she's handled in the narrative. She's a mannequin with Tysha's face on it. Like, that's, mm, yeah. that's what she's there to be in Tyrion's story, is this person he projects on. And what little glimpses we get of what she's got going on elsewhere are just that, little glimpses. Like, we really don't know the mechanism by which Tywin and Cersei got their claws into her. Like, Cersei remembers a conversation they had about jewels, mm-hmm. and, you know, we see her show up in Tywin's bed, but, a lot, you know, th- that's not sketched in because, uh, yeah, I think she's a secondary character in the storyline. I don't think George is, is is hugely concerned with it. But, you know, to to imagine, like, if I was Shay. And I'd spent my life having to work and scrape every hour of every day just to get by, whether, you know, to, to working for my dad, who sounds horrible, or, or working for whoever, whatever man is going to gonna support me. And I got to a position where I was just left alone in a nice manse in the city. I would do nothing all day. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe sitting and staring at a wall sounds unrealistic, but when it's a nice wall, and you're sitting around in your nice cushions, and you have wine, and you have servants, and you maybe have a musician stop by, I mean, you know, the... The, the, the ladies of the court, the less ambitious ones, don't do all that m- m- more, much more than that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> on a day-to-day basis. The ambitions, ambitious ones do, obviously. You know, when you get to the Terrells and the people heading up that little crew. But in that regard, I think Shea would actually fit in with the lower nobility just fine. Like, you know, w- what was Lala Stokeworth doing all day before, you know, the worst befell her? It doesn't seem like all that much. Right. So maybe for Shea, like, that's the goal. To get to a position where you loll around lazily. And you know, I'm not even describing that judgmentally, because for a lot of people, that is the goal of getting to the top of mm-hmm. whatever system you're in, is then you don't have to do anything all day. So maybe Shay's just chilling out.
0: She could be. And you know, why wouldn't you? If you had the opportunity, would you right. be chilling out all day? I mean, like, no shame were, in you, it,
1: really. You know?
0: Yes. It's part of the she, game, she right? You, no no shame in the game. Like that that is her exactly. role right there. She <laughs> is supposed to be, as Tyrion paid her, to be look pretty, you know. Right. Tell him that he's funny. Do things. He, yeah. I mean, like, come on. Like, you, you got to. Like, that's her job. Her, her job is to, you know, there's that article. I don't know if you saw it uh, about the uh, the man from, was it in Japan or someone else that, that was like paid to just do nothing all day? Like that was right, his, his, right. his job. I think that's an article. That, that's Shay right there, right there, in, in a sense. Now, some people have taken objection to this idea that Shay was better in the show. And I, I will say this about Shay in the show. Um, the people in the, in the the live the live cast were doing so here that we do every single week where we were until you know this recent absence. Anyways, um, the um, I, I agree that like, the show did did shape wrong at the very end uh, of her arc, but they did give her like an emotional romantic attachment to Tyrion, which I thought was portrayed really well by Sibel Kelly, and I, I thought that also lent itself to why she would it, it gave her it, it gave her a different. And you can argue which one is a better reason for Shay to testify against Tyrion in his trial. The book version, Shay is just trying to save her life, and the the show version, she's a you know a, her romantic relationship with, with Tyrion has been uh it, it, it has been alienated completely, and that's why she ends up testifying against him. So I I you know, I understand where 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 folks are coming from. I just tend to find the show's version. Better. And maybe that's just because I knew the show's version first before I came to the books, obviously, because season two was in the can when right, I started picking up the, the audiobooks known as the Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Yeah, I think I mean the problem as you're saying that they ran into was that the the ending for Shea in the book just no longer fit the character they were working with in the show right. at all. And that was pretty blatant, unfortunately. And that's some that's a microcosm of I think some other problems that they faced in the show as these characters developed. I think that the character in the books is more coherent, but also because it's she's less ambitious as a character. George doesn't, I think, try particularly hard with her, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I do think she serves one very specific purpose in Tyrion's story, which is related to how he feels about Taisha. I think the tr- I think the tide has turned against doing that sort of thing to secondary female characters, and I think that's positive. But I do think George isn't doing this just to be like malicious. I think it's just... And it's also just different with an actress. Like, you don't want to see an actress, a real person, flesh-and-blood person, forced into playing a role that seems like she's a a sex worker victim on a Law & Order episode, which is kind of what Shay feels like sometimes. Like, you don't want to do that to a talented actress. So I think it it was necessary that they do something more than that with her on the show. And they did... Even though that ended up being kind of incoherent because they still had to fit that that book character death. So that's the – them's the perils of adaptation, folks.
0: Agreed. And George did say he prefers the show's version of Shea to his own book version. So take that for whatever it's worth. Your own opinions. Less than sign. George is – I'm kidding. You can have your death of the author shit like that. They are permitted. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So thank you, Hunting, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the NataCast podcast, where are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Nata Slack, and we're proud to announce our next Patreon-only episode in which we go all the way back to the start of this podcast and A Song of Ice and Fire.
0: That's absolutely true. You know, we were planning on doing this at the end of January, and here we are in February, but it's okay. We're going right into doing this. Uh, in fact, it's going it's to should be coming out next week. So we're going to be taking a look back at yes, the Game of Thrones prologue. So if you go all the way back to our early episodes, you might have noticed a few things. Like I kind of sucked, you know. We were like we, our audio was not very great, sucked, Jeff. Well, well, no, I think I sucked and you were good. Like your points were always really good, but I was like. I've, I wrote this note a long time ago. I said, I was as nervous as a Catholic priest about to tell Pope John Paul II the synopsis of The Last Temptation of Christ when I was doing those early episodes. So now we return back and look at this chapter with fresh eyes and also with season eight in the review. So I think it's going to be interesting just to kind of get the full grasp of the Game of Thrones prologue and what it might mean to the future of of A Song of Ice and Fire, and compare it with things we saw in the, the end of the Thrones show, and how George might or might not do things a little bit differently in in, in a Dream Spring. So that'll be a lot of fun. So can't wait to do that with you, sir.
1: Yeah, I agree. A, we've just gotten better at this. We just, I think, we you know, have more fun <laughs> and are more relaxed. And I think it is interesting to come back, like, you know, thinking about the image of Jon Snow wandering into the woods at the end and, you know, comparing that, as people did in the show, to the very beginning of the series in the sense of a full loop, perhaps. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk mm-hmm. about a number of other things. But yeah, I think we're going to we're gonna milk some interesting stuff out of going back to what is just, you know, a great chapter. There's, there's a, never never a bad time to return to the prologue to A Game of Thrones. That is what got us all into the series. So can't go wrong.
0: Can I go wrong with that? Indeed. But enough about Patreon. So, when we last checked in with Sansa, she had gone to church, well, Faith of the Seventh Church, and then went to a ladies' small group Bible study in Hold Holdfast. Meanwhile, when we last checked in with Tyrion, he was bravely leading the charge to keep a psychopathic monster on the Iron Throne because he is he is good. Let's see the power of prayer in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa 6, and then find out what worth bravery in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 14. The torches shimmered brightly against the hammered metal of the wall sconces, filling the queen's ballroom with a silvery light. Yet there was still darkness in that hall. Sansa could see it in the pale eyes of Sir Ilan Payne, who stood by the back door, still a stone, taking neither food nor wine. She could hear it in Lord Giles's racking cough and the whispered voice of Osney Kettleblack when he slipped in to bring Cersei the tidings. Hmm. Love George starting this chapter out with Sansa knowing there's darkness in the hall, even with all of the light. Superb. Sansa is finishing up some soup when Ozni comes the first time. He smells like horses and has scars on his cheek, very definitely from the battle and not from Aliyah. Hmm. Sansa overhears his report that Ozni whispers the battle, fleets, wildfire chains, Stannis landing, basically a 280 character tweet summary of Davos 3 and Tyrion 13. Inside the city, Ozni reports that there's another round of rioting in Flea Bottom, with Jaslyn bywater dispatching cops to put it down, and Baylorcept Sept is full of people praying. Cersei asks about her son, Joffrey, and Ozni says that he's on the walls telling the men to be brave? Yeah, something like that. Cersei orders another round of wine, and yes, this is definitely not the first round. Sansa thinks that all the heavy drinking is making Cersei more beautiful, though. Her eyes especially were bright green, like wildfire. Uh, I think it feels intentional to me. Musicians played, jugglers juggled, Moonboy lurched about the hall on stilts making mock of everyone, while Serdantos chased serving girls on his broomstick horse. The guests laughed, but it was a joyless laughter, the sort of laughter that can turn into sobbing in half a heartbeat. Their bodies are here, but their thoughts are on the city walls, and their hearts as well. The course follows the soup course, and Sansa might have loved this once, but not tonight she doesn't have an appetite, and she's not alone in them. Giles Rosby was coughing a lot, Lolly Soker was shivering, a young bride was weeping, and Cersei tells Franken to put that young bride to bed. Tears, she said scornfully to Sansa as the woman was led from the hall. The woman's weapon, my lady mother used to call them. The man's weapon is a sword, and that tells us all you need to know, doesn't it? Men must be very brave though, said Sansa. To ride out and face swords and axes, everyone trying to kill you, Jamie once told me that he only feels truly alive in battle in bed. She lifted her cup and took a long swallow. Her salad was untouched. I would sooner face any number of sores than sit helpless like this, pretending to enjoy the company of this flock of frightened hens. You ask them here, Your Grace? Uh, oh, well, well, yeah, but that was because it was expected of Cersei. She hates these bitches. She needs their men, though. If Tyrion somehow prevails, the women will return to their husbands and talk about how courageous Cersei was. Oh, really? Do you think that'll be their takeaway from their experience in Baker's Hold Fast, Cersei? Ah, I just love Cersei. Just cognitive dissonance is brilliant. And if the castle should fall? Oh, you would like that, wouldn't you? Cersei did not wait for denial. If I am not betrayed by my own guard, I may be able to hold out here for a time. Then I could go into the walls and offer to yield to Lord Stannis in person. That will spare us the worst. But if Mager's holdfast should fall before Stannis could come up, why then most of my guests are in for a bit of rape, I'd say. You should never rule out mutilation, torture, and murder at times like these. Sansa is horrified. These are noble women and unarmed. Yeah, and their birth might protect them as they might be worth a ransom, but after battle, soldiers aren't so interested in money as sex, but maybe their status will protect them. Out in the streets, different story though. The women are all in for rapes, and it doesn't matter their age, appearance, or physical state. Even Sansa is not immune. Me? Oh, try not to sound like so much like a mouse, Sansa. You're a woman now, remember? And betrothed to my firstborn. The queen sipped at her wine. Were it anyone else outside the gates, I might hope to beguile him. But this is Stannis Baratheon. I'd have a better chance of seducing his horse. Cersei noticed the look on Sansa's face and laughed. <laughs> have I shocked you, my lady? She leaned in close. You little fool. Tears are not a woman's only weapon. You've got one. You've got another one between your legs, and you'd best learn to use it. You'll find men use their swords freely enough. Both kinds of swords. Fortunately for Sansa, Osfrid and Osni Kettleblack arrived to rescue her. These Kettleblack brothers were favorites of Cersei's and got along with everyone, especially the Serving Wenches. Strangely, Sansa had never heard of these Kettleblacks before Osmin joined the Kingsguard. These brothers report that Tyrion has lit the wildfire and blown a hundred ships up. Cersei asks again what about Joffrey, and they report he's at the Mudgate being very, very brave and telling the men how to handle a crossbow. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Cersei tells them to make sure Joffrey stays alive. She turns to Asfri for his report. He tells Cersei that they've caught thieves. Cersei orders Payne to deal with them. Another lesson you might learn, Sansa, if you hope to sit beside my son. Be gentle on a night like this and you'll have treasons popping up all about you like mushrooms after a hard rain. The only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain that they fear you more than they do the enemy. I will remember your grace, said Sansa, though she had always heard that love was a sure route to the people's loyalty than fear. If I am ever queen, I'll make them love me. And I just love that Sansa line here. It's awesome. The third course is crab pies, which sound really awesome. I am from Baltimore, Maryland, after all. Then some button. Lolly Stokeworth eats too fast and throws up. Giles coughs a bit more, drinks, passes out, Cersei dismisses him as barely a man blaming the gods. Then good old boy Osprey returns and tells Cersei there's rich merchants gathered outside. What should they do? Tell them to go home? And if they don't go home, fucking shoot them, Cersei replies. Strictly business, nothing personal. Actually, I lied. It's super totally personal. Sansa sees the drunk anger in Cersei's face. She slurs that she wishes she could go murder people with a sword. And then she talks about how when she was a kid, everyone would confuse her for Jamie and vice versa. They ended up kind of encouraging this by dressing in each other's clothes. And yet, when they got older, Jamie got a sword and Cersei got fuck all. We were so much alike, Cersei says. I could never understand why they treated us so differently. Jamie learned to fight with a sword and lance and mace, while I was taught to smile and sing and please. He was heir to Castley Rock, while I was to be sold to some stranger like a horse, to be ridden whenever my new owner liked, beaten whenever he liked, and cast aside in time for a younger filly. Jamie's lot was to be glory and power, while mine was birth and moonblood. You were the queen of all the Seven Kingdoms, Sansa said. When it comes to swords, a queen is only a woman after all. By now, Cersei's wine cup is empty, but she declines more to keep a a clear head, I guess. (laughs) Whatever. Asni returns and tells Cersei that Stannis is on the tourney grounds, but Tyrion is riding out against him. Cersei dismisses Tyrion's earned bravery and asks if Joffrey is with him. No, he's not. He's very, very bravely flinging prisoners into the Blackwater, the Antlermen. Cersei calls this folly, which I actually agree with. Cersei's being a little bit smart here. And then tells Osman to retrieve Joffrey and bring him back. Uh, I I do not agree with that one, necessarily. When Osni starts to disagree, Cersei tells him to follow his fucking orders and follow her orders and not Tyrion's. Osman will do the same or he's going out in the attack with Osni. So the knight very, very bravely decides to follow Cersei's order and not go fight in the battle. And everyone returns to their meals. After all, the dishes are cleared. Lady Tanda requests to take her daughters home. And Cersei agrees. Then a singer comes forward and sings songs of Junkwill and Florian, Aemon the Dragon Knight and Nymeria's 10,000 ships. Sansa and the women get teary-eyed. And Cersei notices, very good, dear, the queen leaned close. You want to practice those tears. You'll need them for King Stannis. Sansa shifted nervously. Y- your Grace? Oh, spare me your hollow courtesies. Matters have must have reached a desperate strait out there if they need a dwarf to lead them. So you might as well take off your mask. I know all about your little treasons in the Godswood. The, 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 the Godswood? Don't look at Sir Dantos. Don't, 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 Sansa told herself. She doesn't know. No one knows. Dantos promised me my flurry would never fail me. I, I've, I've done no treasons. I, I've only visited the Godswood to pray. For Stannis? Or your brother, Cersei asks. It's all the same. Why else seek your father's gods? You're praying for our defeat. What would you call that if not treason? Sansa, probably breathing a massive internal sigh of relief, says she's praying for Joffrey. Oh, really? How about being truthful, Cersei says. The now queen pushes a drink on the future queen, telling her to drink. No, no, don't sip it. Chug it frat boy pledge style. Sansa does this, and Cersei asks if she wants more. No, she does not. This makes Cersei angry. As a result, Cersei starts doing some truth talking, asking Sansa whether she truly knows why Illyn Payne is here. Sansa doesn't know, but she doesn't reply either. Cersei motions Sir Illyn over, and he comes over with an unsheathed ice, blood from his earlier execution running down the steel. Cersei instructs Illyn to tell him why he's here. He opens his mouth and chokes out a rattle with no expression on his face. He's here for us, the queen says. Stannis may take the city, and he may take the throne, but I would not suffer him to judge me. I do not mean for him to have us alive. Uh, Us? You heard me. So perhaps you had best pray again, Sansa, and for a different outcome. The Starks will have no joy from the fall of House Lannister, I promise you. Cersei reached out and touched Sansa's hair, brushing it lightly away from her neck. And that is... The synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Sansa 6. So great to be back doing these things. I fucking love doing them. Now the transition over to Tyrion 14.
1: All right, Jeff, don't get cocky. Just because you're back <laughs> in the saddle doesn't mean you get to do both chapters. I think Al will just take over on A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 14. Yes, yes. As Tyrion rides gloriously forth to battle, he can't see for shit. He has to turn his head to see three of Stannis' ships beached on the tourney grounds, with a fourth one still on the water, catapulting Burning Pitch. Tyrion orders his men to form a wedge behind him. On his right is Mandon Moore, with his white armor, white shield, white barding, and dead eyes. How reassuring. (laughs) On the left, Tyrion was surprised to see Podrick Payne, a sword in his hand. You're too young, he said at once. Go back. I'm your squire, my lord. Tyrion could spare no time for argument. With me, then, stay close. He spurred his horse into motion. They accelerate as they follow the walls toward their foes. Said foes are at the King's Gate, wrestling with a large ram. Tyrion orders lances and charges ahead at top speed. He almost sends himself flying from the saddle, ending ending the battle for him as quickly as the green fork on the show, but just manages to hold his seat. The arrowhead flew, a long scream of steel and silk, pounding hooves and sharp blades kissed by fire. Well, damn, George, I can (laughs) see and hear and even smell that incredibly vivid writing. And so the battle is joined. Mandan Moor drives Joffrey's banner into a dude's chest so hard he lifts him off the ground. Tyrion cuts a knight's head in half, but he's a florent, so who cares? <laughs> Tyrion hears cheering from the Lannister men on the walls as the Baratheon troops abandon their ram. Tyrion's horse balks at the ram itself, but Mandan Moor vaults it and keeps killing. Podrick is nowhere to be seen, but Tyrion realizes he's a sitting duck if he stays there to look for him, so instead he rides off over the bodies. Down the black water was jammed with the hulks of burning galleys. Patches of wildfire still floated atop the water, sending fiery green plumes swirling twenty feet into the air. They had dispersed the men on the battering ram, but he could see fighting all along the riverfront. Sir Balin Swan's men, most like, or Lancel's, trying to throw the enemy back into the water as they swarmed ashore off the burning ships. We'll ride for the mudgate, he commanded. Sir Mandon shouted, "The mudgate!" and they were off again. King's Landing! His men cried raggedly, and Half-Man! Half-Man! He wondered who had taught them that. (laughs) Through the steel and padding of his helm, he heard anguished screams, the hungry crackle of flame, the shuddering of war horns, and the brazen blast of trumpets. Fire was everywhere. Gods be good. No wonder the hound was frightened. It's the flames he fears. No, really, Tyrion, you think? (laughs) You think that might have been what set him off? Tyrion realizes at this point that his formation has fallen apart. He regrets riding out here, but it is too late now. Baratheon soldiers stagger out of the water. Tyrion takes the battle to those few still in fighting condition, and George once again brings it with his description of combat. The war shrank to the size of his isolate. Knights twice his size fled from him, or stood and died. They seemed little things, and fearful. "'Lannister!' he shouted, slaying. His arm was red to the elbow, glistening in the light off the river. When his horse reared again, he shook his axe at the stars and heard them call out, "'Half-man! Half-man!' Tyrion felt drunk. The battle fever. He had never thought to experience it himself, though Jamie had told him of it often enough. How time seemed to blur and slow and even stop. How the past and the future vanished until there was nothing but the instant— How fear fled, and thought fled, and even your body. You don't feel your wounds then, or the ache in your back from the weight of the armor, or the sweat running down into your eyes. You stop feeling, you stop thinking, you stop being you. There is only the fight, the foe. This man, and then the next, and the next, and the next, and you know they are afraid and tired, but you're not. You're alive. And death is all around you, but their swords move so slowly you can dance through them laughing. Battle fever. I am half a man and drunk with slaughter. Let them kill me if they can. Tyrion howls with laughter as he cuts down Stannis' fiery heart banner, but the jubilation fades when he comes across a maimed knight offering up his own severed hand in surrender. Yikes. (laughs) Tyrion is then joined by Balin Swan, covered head to toe in blood and smoke. Sir Balin points at something downriver. Tyrion swung his horse about to peer down the black water. The current still flowed black and strong beneath, but the surface was a royal of blood and flame. The sky was red and orange and garish green. What? he said. And then he saw. Steel-clad men-at-arms were clambering off a broken galley that had smashed into a pier. So many, where are they coming from? Squinting into the smoke and glare, Tyrion followed them back out into the river. Twenty galleys were jammed together out there, maybe more, it was hard to count. Their oars were crossed, their hulls locked together with grappling lines. They were impaled on each other's rams, tangled in webs of fallen rigging. One great hulk floated hull up between two smaller ships. Wrecks, but packed so closely that it was possible to leap from one deck to the other, and so cross the black water. Hundreds of Stannis Baratheon's boldest were doing just that. Tyrion saw one great fool of a knight trying to ride across, urging a terrified horse over gunwales and oars, across tilting decks slick with blood and crackling with green fire. We made them a bloody bridge, he thought in dismay. Parts of the bridge were sinking and other parts were afire, and the whole thing was creaking and shifting and like to burst asunder at any moment. But that did not seem to stop them. Those are brave men, he told Sir Balin in admiration. Let's go kill them. (laughs) That, um, that does not go well. Sure, the Baratheon troops scatter before them, but Tyrion is too busy fighting to rein up in time. His horse leaps into the river and breaks its legs. Tyrion mercy kills the poor horse. Covered in its blood, he makes his way across the burning bridge, ship to ship, fighting as he goes. His two white shadows were always with him. balin swan and mandin Moore, beautiful in their pale plate. Surrounded by a circle of Valerian spearmen, they fought back to back. They made battle as graceful as a dance. His own killing was a clumsy thing. He stabbed one man in the kidney when his back was turned, and grabbed another by the leg and upended him into the river. Arrows hissed past his head and clattered off his armor. One lodged between shoulder and breastplate, but he never felt it. All around them, stones and antlermen alike fall onto the bridge of ships, finally wrenching it apart and sending Tyrion spilling into the water. As Tyrion crawls back up onto the deck, he catches a glimpse of a battle on the southern shore. He doesn't understand. Who could Stannis be fighting on the wrong side of the river? Hmm, Who indeed? I wonder if we'll ever find out. Regardless, Tyrion realizes that if he stays here, he's going to be shoved up against his own chain and trapped. Then he hears someone calling his name. My lord, take my hand! My lord Tyrion! There, on the deck of the next ship, across a widening gulf of black water, stood Sir Mandon Moore, a hand extended. Yellow and green fire shone against the white of his armor, and his lobstered gauntlet was sticky with blood. But Tyrion reached for it all the same, wishing his arms were longer. It was only at the very last, as their fingers brushed across the gap, that something niggled at him. Sir Mandon was holding out his left hand. Why? Was that why he reeled backward? Or did he see the sword after all? He would never know. The point slashed just beneath his eyes, and he felt its cold, hard touch, and then a blaze of pain. Tyrion plummets into the water once again, but once again manages to crawl his way back up into the deck. He stares up at the fires blazing overhead, having just enough time to admire the beauty before Sir Mandon shows up. He puts his sword to Tyrion's throat to finish him off, when suddenly he vanishes overboard. Tyrion sees his rescuer looming over him. He assumes it's Jaime, because, well, who else would bother saving him? Be still, my lord, you're hurt bad. A boy's voice? That makes no sense, thought Tyrion. It sounded almost like Pod. Pod. And that is the synopsis for Clash of Kings Tyrion fourteen. Following up on Jeff's synopsis for Clash of Kings Sansa six. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you halfway, sir. I hope I did you justice. I know the synopsis is your bag to take it away from you so cruelly after your return. I hope you can forgive me for such. It was so
0: great. It was so great. I'm so good, so glad good. to actually do this. We like, we we had, when we were first like, we were talking about these Battle of the Black War episodes. We were talking about doing like you were just gonna do all the synopses, and I was gonna do all of like the depth portion of these episodes and. I like what we did instead, which should be mostly. We've mostly stayed to the same format that we, we've done, but uh, it's so good to actually do you a synopsis. I, I've always enjoyed it from, from Catelyn and Tyrion's former chapters back in the Game of Thrones. And uh, yeah, so good to have you back, sir, doing this. So
1: awesome. Well, it's well, even done. better to have you back, sir. Thank you so much for, for doing you. Sansa 6 as great as always. But so to move into our depth portion, we're going to go back to the beginning of our two synopses <clears> and talk first about Sansa 6. The Battle of the Blackwater began with Sansa 5, with her praying in the Sept. It ends with Sansa 7, when she gets the news from Ser Dantos about the Tyrells showing up. Oh, to be a knight, as he says. Right in the middle of the battle, we have Sansa 6. This is the still point around which all of the chaos revolves. The other chapters are cinematic panoramas. This is a theatrical tableau. It's focused not on action, but dialogue. We have taken a step back from the actual fighting... And while the outcome of the battle certainly affects everyone in this room, there is enough distance to dig into what it all means beyond the the more visceral experience we see in the hmm. Davos and Tyrion chapters. Sansa Six is a glimpse behind the curtain. It's all about inconvenient truths.
0: I love that, and I think that's absolutely true. It is very inconvenient truths, but also cons- it's it's almost like um like when we we get talking a lot about Cersei, obviously, but but Cersei is like not necessarily being more truthful. But she just thinks she's like she's like dealing out like truths, like truth bomb after truth bomb after truth bomb. But in, in reality, she's she's as deceived and and self deluded as as everyone else in, the, in that uh, that room. It's also inconvenient truths that are couched in a in a Sansa who is increasingly less of a wallflower, cringing before authority to survive, and more of a maturing woman who is coming into her own and starting to critically evaluate the bullshit that she's been forced to listen to since she's been essentially a captive of the Lannisters since the death of, of, well, since the arrest of Ned Stark. I I love how Sansa basically has a Mystery Science Theater 3000 commentary track to Cersei's (laughs) monologues about how it's better to be feared than loved while ordering burger from the comforts of her luxury to which Sansa thinks, if I am ever a queen, I will make them love me. So there's this term that gets tossed around, mostly by dumb fucking misogynists, which regards female protagonists as Mary Sues, and that is protagonists who suddenly come into power slash abilities without the requisite character buildup and foundation. Again, this is mostly dumb pejorative made by dumber people, but that's not an accusation you could throw at Sansa. George has carefully set all the foundation for Sansa to rise high. And her bravery and thinking here on the Blackwater is just one piece of the larger whole to make Sansa's rise as queen of the North probably in the Winds of Winter plausible, palatable, and also fantastic. Great storytelling.
1: Yeah, I think that that mixture of the kind of the, the more intimate scales for Sansa and the the larger question of what kind of role she's even going to be allowed to play. You have Sansa struggling with her own questions, and then Cersei, you know. Cersei doing this kind of trick where she both uh, wants to have power over Sansa while communicating to Sansa that really women don't have power. Which is right. kind of like little trick there is then, you know, Sansa could say, well, why should I listen to you then? Right. Why yeah. I trust your authority over me. But that gets the kind of. This hypocritical double game that, that Cersei is playing, as we're gonna we're gonna get to in a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So talking about kind of the movement among all these different chapters in the Battle of Blackwater, because we're juggling three different POVs, very different situations, and George has to manage the transitions in different ways. The transition between Davos 3 and Tyrion 13 was smooth. We went from the victims of the Wildfire Inferno to the perpetrator. By contrast, the transition between Tyrion 13 and Sansa 6 is deliberately jarring. The narrative shrinks from the widescreen scope of the battlefield back to the intimate confines of Magor's holdfast with Sansa and Cersei. All around them, the surface appearance of peace persists. Musicians are playing, jugglers are juggling, the fools dance. Magor's holdfast is all silvery light and comfortable furniture. It's all the privileges of aristocracy. What war, you could ask? But as Sansa realizes, there is still darkness in this room, everywhere she looks. The war is here, in whispered messages, in Illin Payne's eyes. Back before her life fell apart, Sansa might have been convinced by that shadow on the wall. Now she knows better. She realizes that the forced laughter is covering up sobs. Everyone is thinking about the battle. She's sitting close enough to Cersei to overhear the battlefield dispatches, She receives from the Kettle Black Bros, which establishes the timeline. As the chapter starts, we get word that the fleets have met Sandor is killing archers, Tyrion is raising the chain. Okay, so we're halfway through Davos 3. Mm -hmm. We also hear that Joffrey is out raising everyone's spirits, which is uh, quite the generous (laughs) interpretation of what Joffrey is doing. (laughs) You know, the Kettle Blacks have to keep up their courtesies, of course. Cersei has no way of checking on what they're telling her, and, you know, I don't think Cersei really cares if they're telling the truth or not. She just wants them to tell her what she wants to hear because that's how she demonstrates that she's in charge. Sansa's chapters are increasingly about this double vision of hers, wherein she sees both the surface and the reality at once and has to learn how how to determine the relationship between the two.
0: Agreed. And, you know, because the, the Kettleblacks are such minor characters, but always just kind of there. I just figured I'd talk a little bit about them here because they're such unctuous assholes in this chapter. I <laughs> love it. It's so great. But part of what Sansa sees in the Kettleblacks is the surface level flattery and ingratiation they do around Sansa and around Cersei really to get their way. All the while, Sansa... Seems somewhat aware of their true nature, about how they get on with the serving wenches' best fall, which is a great line that, that Sansa thinks about. These guys are playing at being knights, but their true power lies in being able to sweet-talk their way into Cersei's favor and into the beds of women generally. What Sansa detects here is their falseness. She doesn't know that they are ostensible agents of Tyrion, or that they are, or will become, it's unclear, agents of Littlefinger someday down the road. In that falseness, though, the Kettleblacks' almost broke as dark mirrors to Sansa because Sansa's not truly down with Cersei and really not all for Joffrey at this point in in the narrative. She's quite aware of who Cersei is and very, very aware of who Joffrey is as well. She's also not a triple agent of various power players, but that's not totally the point. The point is that she's watching, observing, and learning the modes of survival within an oppressive political structure. And at the same time, she's learning about the types of courtiers which exist in any political structure, regardless of oppression or not, and evaluating them based on their loyalty and, more importantly, their competency. The Kettleblacks fall well short on both counts, generously stated, and that will be part of their undoing come a feast for crows. But back on the who's paying them argument, we know that Littlefinger will ultimately be their paymaster and benefactor, again, if he's not already their paymaster and benefactor here in A Clash of Kings. The Kettleblacks then can be seen almost not totally, but almost like a mini boss for Sansa to the end game boss of her arc, Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like, maybe not like mini boss is, is the is the wrong. Term. No, maybe I think the, the, that works.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, it, it kind of works like in a video game level, but I'm thinking more like that she's like evaluating the types of false players that are not sure. very good at the game, the way the Kettle Blacks are. Hmm. For 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 me, like you know, it's much more these these folks like Littlefinger is much more less unctuous and much more subtle as manipulation. But Sansa has been exposed to a lesser version of Littlefinger in the form of these Kettleblack brothers, and she's learning from it. She's, making, she's evaluating her experiences and determining the types of people that these guys are. So come her Queen of the North arc in the Winds of Winter, I think we'll see how Littlefinger lands more accurately how his head lands after <laughs> Sansa is able to more accurately evaluate these types of unctuous assholes who are always trying to curry favor but accumulating their own wealth and power and station in life.
1: It'll be a beautiful sight when Littlefinger's head rolls, absolutely. And I think you're totally right about the structure of her story, that she is dealing with these more minor characters now, and these more characters that are more obvious in their manipulations in a way to prepare her for dealing with Littlefinger. Littlefinger is where she has to show off everything that she has learned. For the (laughs) moment, Sansa's case study for dealing with both the surface and substance of power is Cersei. Though Cersei is less role model than cautionary tale, because she <laughs> is getting shit-faced, even more so than usual. We will have more to say on Cersei's alcoholism come a feast for crows. Suffice to say here that the main reason Cersei is drinking so much is that she feels trapped in this room with her fellow women, who she despises. In the same way that Catelyn can be seen as an evil stepmother character, given her own story to tell... Cersei can be seen as a wicked queen whose relationship to her gender is explored rather than assumed. Cersei resents restrictions placed on her by men, but reserves most of her hatred for other women. Why? Because Cersei doesn't want to overthrow nor even reform the system. She wants exactly one change: her in charge. <laughs> like that like her first POV chapter begins, she jumped, she set she sat the Iron Throne high above them all. That's it. After all, uplifting other women would require significant social transformations of the kinds that might lessen Lannister power. So to quote Futurama, Cersei believes that the worst kind of discrimination is the kind against her, personally. She believes herself to be a special kind of woman, one who ought to have been allowed into the powerful circles of the menfolk. The rest of the women, though, they deserve their plight. They have to, you see, because otherwise that means the system Cersei wants to rule would be bad, and she can't have (laughs) that. Cersei is merciless to other women, not so much to win the approval of men as to demonstrate her own exceptionalism to herself. When a young woman whose husband is out fighting bursts into tears, Cersei has no empathy. She mocks tears as, quote, the woman's weapon. And this is an idea that comes up frequently in the series, that a woman's tears are not a genuine emotional expression of fear or despair, etc., but just a tool of manipulation, a way of getting you to do what they want. There certainly are women in the series who pull off that trick. I mean, you know, some of them do it successfully, some of them not so much. (laughs) But it really does not appear to be the case here. This woman is not trying to manipulate anyone. She's just collapsing into tears. So Cersei isn't actually assessing the situation She's just regurgitating a stereotype, cynically denying that this woman has good reason to cry.
0: And you were referencing before about like people using tears, uh, women especially in the series. Cersei you could be reflecting a on her own performance in a *Dance of Dragons* with the, with the High Sparrow when she's mm-hmm. weeping about like True. her being a widow and then things like that, when she really doesn't actually give a shit about Robert because why would she? Cause Robert was pretty bad, pretty terrible jerk, and pretty terrible all, all around. There's also a huge amount of hypocrisy at work with what you're talking about with Cersei's worldview about tears being a woman's weapon and demonstrating weakness here. I mean, obviously we should take Joffrey's point of view with a grain of salt, but, we should also remember what Joffrey told Sansa back in a Game of Thrones, right after the Battle of the Whispering Wood, where they learn about the Battle of the Whispering Wood. Your brother was defeated by Uncle JB. My mother says it was treachery defeat. She wept when she heard women are all weak, even her, even though she pretends she isn't. Now, now Cersei's relationship with Jamie is incredibly complicated. Again, we're gonna talk about like Cersei's alcoholism and a piece for crows, but her relationship with Jamie is gonna be something that's gonna be a major feature of Jamie's latter uh, a Storm of Swords arc. But, you know, the question is about is it love? Is it narcissism? Why not both? The question, the point being that when Cersei was confronted with the possibility of Jaime dying in Stark captivity and, of course, being captured by Rob Stark, she may have wept too, same as the woman whose husband is out here fighting on the walls of King's Landing. But Cersei, if she thinks about it at all and isn't engaging with cognitive dissonance, which she absolutely totally fucking is, would probably view her tears over Jaime as legitimate because she's a special. This woman, a minor noble at best, is not according to her.
1: Yeah, exactly. Cersei is combining her own unique feelings about her being a person and no one else being a person with the gender roles of Westeros. Because Cersei learned this idea that tears are a woman's weapon. She learned that from her mother. Given what Cersei says later, my guess is that Joanna Lannister said this to make Cersei accept not being allowed to fight. My daughter, you can't have the sword, the castle, the crown. The men control those things. But you can control the men individually on an emotional level, and so that's how you end up in charge of Westeros. As the saying went, Tywin ruled the realm, but Joanna ruled Tywin. This didn't work out for Cersei. That's in part because she's been murderously violent since childhood. (laughs) She likes that kind of power. But it's also because her husband never treated her like a partner. So that's how Cersei arrived at her current worldview. Men are brainless predators. Women are cowardly fools who deserve to be preyed upon. Sansa is still forming her adult worldview, and so stands in contrast to Cersei's certainty in her own cynicism. Cersei resents men for wielding the power of the sword. Sansa says that men still have to be brave because they're facing other men with swords. Cersei shoots back that Jaime says he only feels alive in battle, and in bed. This frames war as a parallel to sex, as with the swordfish and its ram out on the river. If fighting is like fucking, then men aren't brave to fight, they're just trying to feel alive. Again, they're mindless animals seeking serotonin. Courage has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Cersei goes out of her way to deny vulnerability and empathy because her hardline view of power politics makes no room for those things. She is ultimately raging against her own powerlessness, saying she would face those swords without fear because it would mean doing something. (laughs) Instead, she has to sit here and surround herself with women. Sansa points out that Cersei invited them all here. (laughs) This was your choice. You are in power, right? You're the center of attention in this room. Not really, says Cersei. It was expected of me, as it will be expected of you. These women are connected to powerful men, and I am the center of attention because I want those women to tell those men what a great job she did keeping it all together. So who was really in charge? Is it commanding or having the reputation that leads from command? Once more, we are back to Varys' riddle about the true source of power. Cersei is not devoid of political instinct. She has read the rule book. She knows what a queen is supposed to do. During battle, but it's not enough for her.
0: And it never will be enough, but it's also a great moment for Cersei because you're right. She does know the expectations of being a queen and knows that she has to maintain a woman's court. But this is where Tyrion's estimation of Cersei having a low cunning, in my opinion, comes into significant focus. She opts merely for the optics with none of the substance because. What exactly is Cersei doing here in this dining room besides getting fucking hammered? She increasingly signals for courses of food to be served, but she's not actively encouraging these women or boosting their spirits. Everyone is miserable and fearful in this chamber. Rightfully so, and Cersei does nothing to allay their misery or fear. Instead, she sends out Elen Payne to do some executions and keeps throwing barbs at Sansa. Really, the only person who demonstrates the substance of a queen is Sansa. But we're going to have to wait for Sansa 7 to get more deeply into this because it's just a, one of my favorite moments in, in Sansa's storyline in Clash of Kings when uh, she encourages all of these women when they're really freaked out after, after some events are, are, are told to them in, the, in this room.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, she's able to step up and take charge in that moment. But for this chapter, she's just kind of soaking it in and deciding what she thinks about it. Cersei says that if the castle falls, she might have enough time to perform the role of queen, going up to the walls to surrender in person. If she doesn't have that time, however, the veil of chivalry will fall completely, and the women in this room will be subject to assault. Sansa is horrified by this, and it's worth teasing out why. She says they are women, unarmed, and gently born. Well, there are multiple kinds of logic at work there. We are defenseless, is a universal plea for mercy. It cuts across all cultures and time periods. Don't attack those who can't fight back. We are women is rooted in the Westerosi moors. Sansa has absorbed. The songs and stories of Westeros declare, as Sansa said in her previous chapter, that true knights would never harm women and children. We are rich women, which is what she's saying when she says they're gently (laughs) born, is yet another kind of argument. More worldly. This is Sansa arguing that a golden shield might be enough to save them. Sansa has the double vision of someone who has only just begun to mature. She makes naive and cynical arguments simultaneously. Cersei is a woman who has been spat out the other end of that process, in which neither idealism nor real politic is enough to save you from the void. In Cersei's worldview, tears are an ineffective weapon, Because during battle, very few men are going to be moved by a display of emotion. Same goes for the golden shield of wealth. It's not enough when the blood runs hot. Instead, Cersei falls back on her weapon of choice. Sex. She frames her vagina as a sheath. A way to calm and control men's eager swords, so to speak. Hmm. But that's not going to work on Stannis. Because Stannis (laughs) is notoriously uninterested in sex. Cersei says she'd have better luck trying to seduce his horse. And this is a hilarious image, of course. George (laughs) always minds Stannis' stick-up-the-ass reputation for humor as well as dread. That reputation is so well established that all Cersei has to say is, this is Stannis Baratheon, and we know what she means. That's A-plus characterization, especially since we've only seen Stannis a handful of times so far. But we know exactly what Cersei is talking about, Mm -hmm. the the way Stannis would look at sex and go, eh, (laughs) <laughs> With anyone but Melisandre, eh, no thanks. On reread, however, I realized that really this makes Stannis's invasion the worst of both worlds for the women in this room. If his men were as chaste as him, well, these women wouldn't be in danger. If Stannis was just as horny as his men, Cersei could seduce him and so keep these women safe from his men. But the particular combination of a horny army and a chaste commander... Means there is no way for Cersei to weaponize her sexuality.
0: That's such a fantastic point. I mean, Cersei is in, in a lose-lose proposition. Whoever shows up to the walls, the Red Keep. This makes me weirdly think of Daenerys's arc in, in a dance with dragons. You know, to kind of tie this in with Cersei, when George originally had a Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons as one book, his plan was to parallel Danny and Cersei's chapters. You'd have a Danny chapter, then a Cersei chapter, and of course in the published narrative in A Feast for Crows, you have ten chapters from Cersei's point of view, and ten for Danny's in a dance with dragons. Recall also in A Dance with Dragons how a major part of the plot, of Danny's plot in particular, was how Danny is rationalizing wedding and betting his of Lorik as the quote-unquote price of peace to keep the sons of the Harpy from killing her children. That is the freed men and women of that she's liberated along the, her righteous campaign in Slaver's Bay. And this works in Meereen as the Sons of the Harpy do actually stop killing Dany's Freeman after Dany agrees to wed his Dar if she receives 90 days of no murders. Now, whether this is a temporary hold or not is a question we will definitely cover when we get into a Dance with Dragons. It's going to be so much fun because I think we have slightly different perspectives on that, which would be great. The point being, though, is that this is Westeros. Is that the point being is that in Westeros, in Planetos, a woman's sexuality is often used as currency to cement peace or form alliance. Look only at John Arryn securing Robert's fledging rule by wedding Robert to Cersei, or how Hostetelli leveraged Lysa as a potential bride for John Arryn as a price for his continued support for the Southern Ambitions conspiracy. And though it plays well with the fucked-upness of the Lancers to have Cersei bed brothers, hello, blacks, Stannis is not Robert. Sexuality and women in general make this Baratheon feel uncomfortable. Still, you can't help but feel Sad for Cersei in this scene. I mean, she's internalized how Tywin used her sexuality as barter to try and wed her to Rhaegar first, and then to Robert ultimately, and she has considered using it again with Stannis to try and save the people in this women's court. Now, it's it's a kind of a generous interpretation to say that Cersei is leveraging leveraging this for peace and to save her women because she tends, tends to look at this a little bit more cynically than the way that Danny's looking at at Maureen. But at the same time you can see how there is a bit of a parallel that George is drawing between these two women, these two queenly arcs rather, and how they are their sexuality is being used to try and make peace or to save people. although Cersei probably wouldn't necessarily believe in saving people because of course she thinks that these are lesser people than than the ones that are uh, than, than herself obviously.
1: Certainly, but, you know, Cersei thinks of herself in a similar way to how Danny thinks of herself. I think Danny has more reason to think of herself that way, but it doesn't mm. change the fact that Cersei also thinks of herself as a woman maligned and misunderstood and just as good as the men around her who don't listen. And Danny's enemies who encompass a lot of people and, you know, not just the slave masters either at this point, they think of Danny the way we think of Cersei. Because those are the stories they've been told. So they, that's the perspective they have on her. You know, it's, it's all about reputation and performance, the eye of the beholder. Sansa knows this by now. When one of the Kettleblacks comes in, she thinks about how they've created quite the reputation for themselves around the castle... But if they're so good, why hadn't I heard of them before? (laughs) And this is my favorite Sansa, extreme chivalry nerd Sansa, who memorized the back of every knight's rookie card and doesn't think they're all that important if she doesn't know everything about them. Sansa is no longer just swallowing the songs on face value. She is using them as interrogative tools to make sense of the deceptions around her. She specifically compares the kettlebacks to Sandor. As much as the hound frightens her, he also impresses her... Unlike the Kettle Black bros. (laughs) Cersei does not appear to notice Sansa's evolution. She still thinks of her as an easily shocked little fool. The irony here is that Sansa is performing her role better than Cersei by keeping a lid on her emotions. When some servants try to sneak away, Cersei orders them executed. As I've been saying, the call is coming from inside the house. Stannis's attack threatens the people of King's Landing, but when those people try to escape, the Lannisters kill them for it. The common folk are trapped with no safe haven on either side. Cersei is not a straightforward brute like Gregor Clegane. She insists that there is a logic to her actions. Mercy for traitors increases the number of treasons. Laws should be made of iron, not pudding, as someone says at the wall. I can't remember who. To win, your people must fear you more than the enemy, Cersei says. I think this is BS for a number of reasons. First of all, these servants weren't actively supporting Stannis like the antler men, they just wanted out of his way, they weren't doing any damage to the Lannister cause. Secondly, Cersei herself contributes to the collapse of morale by ordering Joffrey to be brought deeper inside the castle, that does way more damage than letting a few servants sneak out the back. Thirdly, fear easily turns into anger, hatred, and rebellion, especially if people think death is their only alternative. And finally, even if ruling through fear gets you through the battle, it weakens your political legitimacy in the aftermath. That last point especially applies to Tywin, from whom Cersei presumably learned all this, if only by example. He never prepared his family to rule in peacetime, and so they just don't know how to do it. Sansa thinks she always heard that the best way to get people to follow you was not fear, but love. If she's ever queen, she'll make them love her. And this, of course, is one of the most significant passages in Sansa's story, the one people like to bring up over and over again. George is arguing against ruling with an iron fist. Instead, your politics should be driven by empathy, compassion, and encouraging everyone to be their best possible self. Not only is this kinder, it's actually stronger in the long run. We see that with Ned, who presumably taught Sansa this like Tywin taught Cersei, again, if only by example. The Northmen loved Ned and so fight and die for his family. The Westermen merely feared Tywin and so slip away from his family. Love lasts beyond the grave. Fear withers with the flesh. It is the memory of love that sustains that sustains Sansa. And by that same token, it is the absence of love that has corrupted Cersei. I think George wants us to understand how she got here.
0: I absolutely agree. And, you know... When I when I look at a character like Cersei, I think about George's one of George's primary inspirations in writing. That's namely comics, particularly the silver the silver age of comics from Mm -hmm. the nineteen sixties to the nineteen seventies. His first George's first published piece was a nineteen sixty three letter to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in response to Fantastic Four number seventeen. After all, I mean you can you can read George George George's actually. I watched a video of him actually reading his his letter um, to the editor back back in the day when he was just a kid. Now, it should be pointed out that George is also writing against some of the tropes of comic book stories, saying things like, there's this comic this kind of comic book kind of thing where the Red Skull gets up in the morning and asks, what evil can I do today? Real people don't think that way. We all think we're heroes. We all think we're good guys. We have our rationalizations when we do bad things. Well, I had no choice. Or it's the best of several bad alternatives. Or no, it was actually good because God told me so. Or I had to do it for my family. We all have rationalizations for why we do shitty things or selfish things or cruel things. That being said, one of the features of many of these Silver Age comics was the so called origin stories. And I imagine that George took inspiration from these origin stories in crafting Cersei's villainous origin story alongside Sansa's heroic origin story. As Cersei, as Cersei touches on here and gets a longer exploration of Feast for Crows. Cersei isn't evil for the sake of being evil. She's not some just straight up ice queen here in the the form of fairy tale storytelling. Cersei's villainous origin story is one of an extremely shitty father who projected his misogynistic worldview onto her at at an early age. And seemingly Joanna played some role in that as well. Here in A Clash of Kings, we learn only about how Cersei was trained in, a strict, in the strict gender roles of smiling courtesies in marriage and birthing children. And it's only in Cersei's telling of her story. The origin story, of course, is later expanded in Cersei's point of view chapters to Feast of Crows with Maggie the Frog and her friends, one of whom she, of course, murders, or likely murders. Sansa? we we have her learning love from her father and mother at an early age, learning chivalry and courtesy. I love your point about having the, uh, the baseball cards because I had a whole like, books of them growing up as a kid. But Sansa's experience is tempered by her real world experiences. This is Sansa's heroic origin story of her journey to queenship and eventual rule. Intriguingly, I also think George was writing Tyrion's supervillain origin story through his Clash of Kings slash The Storm of Swords chapters, because Tyrion 2 doesn't simply just become more villainous than Dance of Dragons because he woke up one morning and decided that he was Breaking Bad. He had a long journey to get there, and that long journey is really well written here in these Clash and Storm chapters.
1: I think George wants us to understand that something that connects the characters we instinctively like versus the ones we instinctively recoil from is that they all have things they're trying to get back and all have moments they are obsessed with and play over and over in our heads. And the characters we end up being more sympathetic with are the ones who find socially positive ways of dealing with that. And the ones we recoil from are the ones who don't. But there's there's yeah. no character who's completely free from that or has a way of banishing their ghosts. Even like Sept and Maribold, perhaps the most... positive character in the whole series. (laughs) Even he, as he makes clear, is haunted by the people he fought with and against and for. And they Mm. are with him every single day. And the same is true of Cersei and the life she's led. Her voice starts to slur at this point. She is just drunk enough to be vulnerable. She tells Sansa that when they were children, no one could tell Jaime and Cersei apart. Their childhood was Eden, a paradise free of shame. They could even dress in each other's clothes. No one could tell their identities were open. The change, the fall, was not created by them, but by the expectations of the world around them. We were alike, says Cersei, they made us different. Jaime got a sword, Cersei asked what she got, and then she was told that she's not a person who gets things, she's a thing that another person's going to get. This was a defining moment for Cersei's character, as with, if I am ever queen, I'll make them love me for Sansa. Jamie was to be granted the tools of agency, power over himself and others. Cersei was to be treated like she was merely one of those tools. I think George does a great job here of capturing how individual lives and the systems around them intersect in a chicken and the egg sort of way. Did the patriarchy create Cersei Lannister? Yes, but she also created herself in her reaction to the patriarchy, in her desire to imitate it. Cersei is both victim and abuser, sympathetic in terms of the world she was born into, but unsympathetic in terms of what she has made of it. Both Tyrion on the battlefield and Cersei here in this room contrast themselves with Jaime. Jaime was the one, they say, who got to live his life out there with the swords, and all we can do is listen wistfully as he tells us about it. (laughs) But wait, where did all that lead Jaime in this book? to a cell underneath river run, where he confesses to Catelyn that his perfect manly life never made any sense to him at all. Robert wasn't happy with kingship, despite his physical power over Cersei. If Cersei could understand that, then she might understand that running the world through fear is the original sin, and love is the only way out. Instead, she reaches the conclusion that power is identical to happiness. Powerful men must be happy! by definition, and have denied that satisfaction to her. When it comes to swords, she says, she's just a woman after all. And Cersei has never found a way to be proud of herself as just a woman. Will Sansa?
0: You certainly hope so. And I think all evidence points to, yes, I think that Sansa will find a way to be proud as being, quote unquote, just a woman. I mean, you've, you've also been pointing out so well how George has Sansa balance her naivety, her love of chivalry with her growing maturation, and knowledge of the real world. She, she's starting to see beyond the surface level, knowing that sometimes bad people can be beautiful. Look at Cersei right there. Here we see that Cersei, much like Robert's Rebellion, her fellows there in Robert's Rebellion, has had her development arrested by the traumas of her youth. Because Robert? wasn't actually happy being an abusive alcoholic. Tywin, he doesn't seem all that happy with the power that he's accumulated through all of these years. But Cersei can only see the glittering surface, Robert atop the Iron Throne, her lord father in gleaming golden armor. But underneath that surface, that adulthood, these are still sad teenagers who react to their own traumas who are desperately lonely at the top. Love can certainly be a sweet poison, as Cersei told Sansa back in her fourth chapter, But the thing is that going all in on fear and on power, those aren't answers either. Again, I think the alternative that Sansa is going to specifically reference at the end of this chapter and throughout her arc going forward is her father, Ned Stark, because Ned was able to balance power, fear, and love in the form of that we see best of all in him balancing a father's face around his children and his family and his servants and those that he loved that were in the Winterfell entourage and the lordly face he sometimes had to affect
1: as well. I think that's a really good point. I think that's that's probably wiser than some of the stuff I was saying earlier. I don't mean to, like, obviously it's possible to overindulge on love and everything you associate with love. And it's possible just to become, like we saw with Robert, just very slothful and into your own appetites and interests at expense of of everything else. That seems to have been the case with Titus Lannister as well. And I think it was also the case with Renly, even if you could say he was more kind of competent than those guys. <laughs> it was still very much a case of, look at how awesome we all are, and we don't have to do anything, and we can just slowly take our time going to King's Landing, wasting everything. You know, the exact mirror opposite of Stannis's kind of obsession and Cersei's kind of obsession with ruling through fear. And there was a sense that Ned integrated these ideas into something more sustainable in the same way that yeah. you want— summer and winter to happen properly you don't want a thousand-year mm-hmm. summer or a thousand-year winter you want to to move through these things at a, at a reasonable pace you want moderation in your life and i think ned as our og protagonist was the one who pulled that off but with the bittersweet truth as you're saying that he was still one of those sad lonely teenagers like that didn't make him solved as a person <laughs> that didn't get rid of his pain he had to hold both those faces at the same time which is is really difficult and um i think very much a contrast to a To someone like Cersei when they descend into their madness or a character like Illin Payne who only has one kind of face you know only only one Mm -hmm. kind of personality trait and throughout this chapter George is exploring the tension between the surface appearance the surface appearance of peace and the hidden realities of war even as Cersei drinks she looks more and more the part of the queen Sansa thinks her cheeks flushed a rosy red but her eyes give her away eyes of wildfire As the chapter begins, she is already betraying what will be her fatal flaw in leadership, fixating on Joffrey's personal safety at the expense of all else. It's not even rational, as Lancel desperately tries to point out to her in Sansa's next chapter. Pulling Joffrey back makes it harder to hold the city due to collapsing morale, which increases the odds that Stannis will win and kill Joffrey. But Cersei's not thinking rationally right now. Fear, anger, and above all, booze are clouding her mind. Her behavior is wildly inconsistent. She accuses Sansa of treason with one breath and then talks as though she's <laughs> still going to marry Joffrey with the other. As the chapter ends, she threatens Sansa's life with execution by ill Payne should Stannis prove victorious. It is a skin-crawling moment in which you realize there's no way out for Sansa. Cersei's nihilism, her inability to see anyone else as anything more than a pawn to be sacrificed for pride and spite, I think it's meant to remind us of the Mad King. I shudder when Cersei brushes Sansa's hair aside for Sir Ilin to strike. But in Sansa 7, Cersei flees the room without so much as glancing at Sansa. So while on first read I was afraid for Sansa's life, uh, the tone felt different to me on reread. It was kind of pathetic. Like, Cersei is insisting on still having some power. She doesn't even care about executing Sansa, so much as reassuring herself that she could if she wanted to. (laughs) She's still in charge around here. That mixture of aggressiveness and pettiness reminds us that being powerful is not the same as being strong. And we can see that in the present day with how fragile Trump is, even slash especially at his most dangerous we use power to bolster our ego. But the question becomes, what will that ego do to hold on to power?
0: Right. And that's the question that's going to be explored at significant depth in, in Cersei's arc in The Feast for Crows. Because I think, like, you're right. It's it's a petty nihilism without teeth. Cersei can't bear the thought of other people living on if she falls. She wants this whole thing to be a suicide pack, unwitting to everyone but her, Illin, and Sansa. But as you said, it's pathetic because she doesn't. Have the actual power, and she doesn't have the will to carry it out when she thinks that the fall of her house is at hand. In the next Sansa chapter, still there's drying blood on Illyn Payne's sword, but it's not his sword. It's it's ice. It's Ned's sword that was stolen by the Lannisters. You know, I think about ice. I think about Ned using it against Garrett back in Brand's first chapter in the Game of Thrones. And though Sandra will c- had previously claimed that Ned loved killing just like he did, and how everyone else who is engaged in warfare loves killing. We know that's that's not true, as we find Ned cleaning ice and spending time in prayer in front of Winterfell's heart tree in Catelyn's first Game of Thrones chapter after that execution of Garrett. Then it was it almost to me it seemed as if Ned was going for that out damn spot of cleaning from of cleaning ice long after his blade is free of blood. All the while, Ned cleansed his soul with prayer. Here, though, ill Payne is one such person who Sandor Clegane is right about. He loves killing. He loves it so much that he lets the blood of the innocent people linger on the sword. Ilan lives for killing, and despite being the king's justice, he doesn't kill reluctantly like Ned does to satiate justice. Again, questions about the death penalty and things like that, we'll put that aside for the moment. Ilan Payne is just a killer who loves the sword for itself. Ilan Payne, I think here in the, at chapter's end, has profaned the blade with the blood of and He is willing to do it again and kill more innocents like Sansa, if Cersei orders it. Thankfully, though, Cersei does not order it. Being a toothless, being powerful yet not strong might end up saving Sansa's life in the next next Sansa chapter.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Obviously, there's a point to be made that maybe, hey, maybe we shouldn't be cutting anybody's head off, even if it's done (laughs) in a just kind fashion. And that's, you know, that's the argument to be made more by characters like Septon Meribald. But it's easier to be someone like Septon Meribald when you're just an individual with no power. If you're a Ned Stark and you're trying to use power in a well-intentioned way, you end up having to make trade-offs. And that's something he was willing to do and it's something that you know someone like cersei is not willing to do and she just uses people like cold killers i f- think we're seeing it in action what ned said if you you know you keep using a headsman you're going to forget what death is i think cersei has forgotten and it's just a way for her to control people instead of something horrible mm-hmm. so that takes us uh, all the way through sansa 6 why don't you take us into Tyrion 14 sir take us into our battle chapter
0: oh man talk about a, a chapter where george does a great job of, of- really writing a fantastic battle chapter. Again, we've, we've seen George do battle chapters previously, the Battle of the Whispering Wood, the Battle of the Green Fork, the Battle of the Camps, but Blackwater is where George really, really shines. And I think what we're going to get him doing even greater and more better writing of battle scenes come the Battle of Ice, Winterfell, and of course, the Battle of Marine slash Fire come the Winds of Winter. So Tyrion 14 opens with some fabulous wording by George, talking about how Tyrion's vision is limited to only what's in front of him, which I think speaks to the entirety of Tyrion's arc at A Clash of Kings. His vision has only been limited to figuring out the solution to today's problem, all the short-term shit, all the while knowing that the long-term problem lingers, that's Joffrey, and the even longer-term problem is, of course, the entire illegitimate Lannister cause in totality, which, of course, Tyrion is happily, maybe not so happily, propping up.
1: Mm, That's a good point. He's just keeping it at the periphery of his vision and ignoring it as best he can. And he also can't see Mandon Moore's betrayal coming until it's almost too late. As the chapter begins, Tyrion sees Moore at his side, dead eyes under white armor like a ghost, an angel of death waiting for him to grow weak. Thankfully, he has Pod on his other side doom and deliverance, a false knight and a true squire. Tyrion walks on a knife's edge between them. Kudos to Tyrion, for the record, for trying to send Podrick back. One-on-one, Tyrion can still try to do the right thing, to do justice, even as his overall role kind of prevents him from doing that. But brave, Podrick refuses to go back, and whew, good thing for Tyrion that he does, because otherwise Tyrion would be dead, and no one would know how it happened. Right, very, very dead.
0: Tyrion sees three landing ships have beached along the north shore of the Blackwater, and another ship was providing support by fire with its catapult for Stannis's men landing. Again, if we go back to Tyrion 13, we know that many of Stannis's ships had evaded the wildfire and were now beaching on the north shore of the Blackwater. What this means is that's kind of support by fire thing. It's a terminal that's a term that is used by the military to mean that the catapult is suppressing Lannister artillery and archers on the walls, which are allowing for Stannis's men to advance to the King's Gate under cover of fire. Tyrion orders his men to move in a wedge. Now, if you've never played anything in the Total War series, again we've been doing a lot of computer games shit here recently. You might not know what this is. It's, it's basically kind of like a like a like a triangle shape, so to speak. Why use it? Because it brings the maximum amount of force to bear on the center of the army of the enemy line and engage all elements across the line in sequence, thus not allowing the enemy to form a cohesive defense. George describes their movement as knee to knee, which indicates they're tightly packed together. Given how thin the strand of land is between the wall of the wall, I put the wall in cap- capitals, it's not the wall. It's the walls of King's Landing and the Blackwater. They're probably doing this out of necessity so as not to have the horses charging into the walls or into the river and drowning. It also applies the full combat force of cavalry trying to drive Sans' men into the river or into the ground. Tyrium takes the lead atop his red horse with Mandibor looking like a ghost mounted on a black horse to his right, with Padrick on his left. Fire and blood imagery is definitely in evidence here. The the approach to King's Landing is a tough one, and we see the extent of what Sander Clegane was facing in his sorties. The gate was being rammed, and Stannis' ships and archers were shooting at everyone who popped up to try and repel the attack. Tyrion orders the cavalrymen to move to lances, a lance being a long wooded instrument with a metal point at the end. And given the, that tight formation, the lances were probably held underarm, which is actually a style that George might have been borrowing from real world history here with his knights holding their lances in a French or German style. Stannis' men had recognized the danger only at the last minute and tried to form a line or a shield wall to repel Tyrion's charge, but it's, it's too late. The Lancer cavalry cuts through the Brathians and forces them to withdraw back into the river. Lances, though, they extend the range of the lances to deliver death blows to the Baratheons. And Tyrion himself then draws his axe and, with, and Mandan, after impaling a Baratheon soldier with the king's banner, again, no symbolism detected here whatsoever, draws his sword. The Baratheons flee to the east away from Tyrion's charge and Tyrion keeps his cavalry in pursuit.
1: George has to strike the balance here between the pleasure of reading a specific plan unfold and capturing the fog of war, as chaos overtakes all the plans. Everything moves faster on the battlefield than it does in those little strategy sessions. The wedge formation comes together like a divine lightning bolt, but comes apart just as quickly. In the middle of fighting, Tyrion's brain will pause to take in the cheers from the wall, or wonder what Shaga would have made of all this. Tyrion's focus is all over the place, but that changes as he charges onward and the battle fever takes over.
0: And, you know, battle fever is such an interesting term because I kind of know what Tyrion is going for here from some personal experience. But I also know it from some experience of being drunk once or twice in my life. (laughs) Because Tyrion... Just once or twice. One one or two times. Because Tyrion compares battle fever to the feeling of being drunk. and And I really love this. When I knock back a few... IPAs, which of course the king of beers. I feel more of myself than before. Words and thoughts and actions come naturally and I feel more alive than usual. And I always reach for my phone and start tweeting all sorts of unusual stupid shit. Tyrion's battle fever is one in which his actions flow organically as if it's an unconscious movement of his limbs. I I love that line where Tyrion raises his axe to the stars. Like he's in the midst of this battle, he's raising his axe up into the stars and hears them all call back to him, half man, half man. That being said, part of Tyrion's feeling here is a fever born of feeling, perhaps for the first time like that people actually like him, like being around him, rather than groveled him because he's Tywin's son and bears the last name of Lannister. Tyrion has earned the admiration of the men he's leading into battle, and that really gratifies him in a way that's hard for him to quantify.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a bittersweet moment when Tyrion's men cheer half-man, and he wonders who taught them that. Because it wasn't him, but it should have been. I said earlier that Cersei has, simultaneously, inherited and invented her cage. And the same holds for Tyrion. To a large degree, his reputation is out of his hands. He's been called a monster from birth. A punishment sent from the gods to humble the father who transparently hates his guts. Tyrion doesn't need Varys to tell him that power resides where men believe it resides everyone sees him as a villain so he'll become one it feels like an inevitable outcome a law of thermodynamics you become your mask who are we but the person we are in the eye of the beholder after his fall from power after his family openly turns against him at last Tyrion will confess if only to us that he thinks we are all powerless it all goes back and back he thinks to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets, dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. And that is an authentic statement of the human condition. But it's also an attempt to avoid reckoning with Tyrion's (laughs) own choices in the face of fate. Those men shouting half-man is a brief glimpse of a different mask for Tyrion to wear, that of a war hero who overcame obstacles to win the day. Tyrion has been convinced, over the course of his life, in ways that were large and small, but uniformly brutal, that he cannot be loved, that his public image is out of his control. This has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because Tyrion thinks that he can't have a good reputation, he guarantees that he won't have one, He fails to cultivate the positive public image of the half-man to counter the negative public image of the imp. We already saw this in action during the bread riots when Jocelyn Bywater laid out these reasons that people hate him, these (laughs) policies he could change and do something about. And Tyrion's response is, yes, and I am a monster besides, hideous and misshapen. Never forget that, because he can't forget it. Tyrion's alienation from a world that hates him for circumstances beyond his control is sympathetic. But just as Cersei remade herself in the image of patriarchy, Tyrion takes rejection as a given. It's the only taste he knows. It all comes back to their parents, as Tyrion said, to their origins. Yet his own decisions have still contributed to the spider web in which he is stuck. It's that great, you know, again, the human condition. We're, We're in charge of our lives... But also, at some level, we're not.
0: And, and I think, like too, Tyrion has a degree of autonomy, but he's also it's it's also lent from Tywin, right? He knows that he's being placed in this position. You go back to the end of A Game of Thrones because Tywin didn't have Jaime to take his stead while he prosecuted the war against Ned against Ned Stark against Rob Stark, and and that just makes him almost like a feel have this feeling of he's his own man, but only to a degree. And at the same time, being his own man and being a lancer has people groveling to him and at the same time not loving him. But here at this one moment, he has the half man, half man being shouted as he's charging into battle. And it makes him feel good for once in his life that he's, that people actually like him. They like being around him. They're not being around him because he's paying them or because he's Tywin's son, but because he's the one who's, who's leading them into battle, who gave that epic speech at the end of Tyrion 13. This also part of the battle is where George mirrors the writing to Tyrion's mental state. You, you were putting it so well about how the strategy devolves into the actuality of warfare. Because instead of a movement of armies, men, pieces on a chessboard, George opts for an impressionistic and episodic storytelling here. We're really deep into Tyrion's headspace and, and it's a bribe. It's in that vein we get the sensory experience, especially the sights and sounds of war. The horns and the screams of wounded and dying men, the smoke and fire. Tyrion notes that most of his original party is now dead or fled, leaving only a small group to make the move east towards the Mudgate. Most of Sanis' army that Tyrion encounters are survivors from the wildfire explosions, and Tyrion subsequently kills many of them. Here, though, George flip-flops between the glory of war and the horror with Tyrion's battle fever and bravery intermingling with things like The knight who offers his gauntlet as a token of submission, only for Tyrion to discover that it was actually his severed hand he was offering in submission. Horrifying.
1: It is horrifying, but I agree, George's writing achieves mastery here. As Updike said about Nabokov, he writes prose the only way it should be written. That is, ecstatically. The collision of elemental awe, gut-level carnage, and Tyrion's steadily warping perspective produce a sort of double vision. It's an enchantment of Tyrion's thought process that George reflects in the style. Tyrion is both inside his body, the meat shell at high risk of death, (laughs) and outside his body as an immortal soul reveling in existence itself. At first, the body's fear paralyzes him. The very fires he unleashed are hemming him in. He understands, too late, why Sandor was afraid. The battle strategy that unfolded a thousand times in his mind's eye has unraveled, robbing him of his secure foundation, the illusion of control. It's replaced by the world, as it appears, when you first step outside Plato's cave. You are an ant, and God is a boot. Oh look, Tyrion thinks, a ship just exploded. (laughs) Which side was it on? Who knows? Who cares? The borders between the sides have blurred. Both sides wield fire, Both sides are a threat to the civilian population, and now Tyrion literally can't tell them apart. The war is now its own entity, with its own logic, like that wildfire balrog that burst into being in the sky. It's a mouth eating everyone alive. Tyrion thinks that he should have turned back, echoing the opening lines of the story, but as in the prologue to A Game of Thrones, it is already always too late. In order to face the fire, Tyrion must purge the part of himself that fears, and with it, the part of himself that cares. He guides his horse forward, representing his will's domination of the terrified animal body. The industrial purge of war has stripped Tyrion of his favorite weapon, rational thought, (laughs) and taken him back to the primitive. It's the arc of the human mind laid out in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Intelligence is linked to the evolution of Warcraft. We use our brains to come up with weapons. But then the use of those weapons, the shock and horrors of war and combat, returns us to a place before and beyond the ego that allowed that process to begin. George's mental map of the battle fever is psychologically resonant. Tyrion transcends, not through shade of the evening nor literal blood sacrifice, but by unlocking a side of himself that was hidden even from himself. The part of Tyrion's brain where he consciously hangs out loves books, right? The world of the evolved human imaginary. But another part of him, and another part of everyone, is still conditioned to kill or be killed. That part is connected to the uncanny, the intuitive and instinctive. It's that part of him that shivered at the memory of a wolf's howl in the north, because up there, he had rubbed elbows with the unknown. The war shrinks to Tyrion's eye slit. Only the miracle of his ongoing existence matters, and he secures that miracle through bloodshed. His enemies are no match for him. This is in part because you say they're just barely surviving the wildfire (laughs) inferno. they're, they're, They're in bad shape. But it's also because Tyrion has entered a different state of mind, in which the knights that always loomed above him suddenly appear small. Tyrion salutes the stars and hears them call Half-Man back. It's a hallucinatory moment in which Tyrion feels at one with the cosmos. His family and society never approved of him, but hey, the universe itself does, apparently. Tyrion recalls what Jaime told him of the battle fever. Physical pain seems to vanish. Time slows to a crawl. Your self-awareness itself is gone. As Jaime said, you stop being you. It's an almost zen state of enlightenment, in which the fears and desires of the ego are purged. Tyrion has lived his life very much on the mind side of the classical mind-body divide. Like, yeah, he enjoys sex and wine, but his self-conception is of a mind, not a body, because he hates his body. Hmm. Now, for the first time since Tywin ripped Tysha away from him, Tyrion does not hate his own body. He accepts being, quote, half a man because getting drunk with slaughter has temporarily unburdened him of shame. For once, I am happy to be alive. So therefore, I am not afraid to die. It's remarkable that George is able to capture this fierce joy in combat, even as he expresses his anti-war sentiments. It's doubly remarkable because George has never himself experienced the battle fever. Amidst war, Tyrion has ironically achieved a state of peace. But it can't last. As you said, the knight without a hand transforms the tone once more. This knight is playing by the rules of chivalry, the idea that common humanity should persist, even when, you know, everyone is trying to kill each other. (laughs) He's yielding in the name of that humanity. He's begging for mercy from his enemy, Tyrion, who the knight came here to overthrow and execute. Despite the battle fever, Tyrion is willing to play by those rules. He reaches down to accept the gauntlet of surrender. It seems that mercy still holds... And then comes another burst of wildfire, illuminating the scene, and Tyrion realizes what he's looking at. That's not water beneath the man, that's blood. That's not just his gauntlet, it's his severed hand inside the gauntlet. What appeared to be an image of humanity persisting in war has now been revealed as an image of war stripping away our humanity. You can see this as a metaphor for George's overall storytelling strategies. He shows you the projected self-image of this society, a soldier yielding with courtesy to the enemy and receiving mercy in turn. The wildfire explosion lights up the scene and reveals the truth, just like the author's perspective acts like a shaft of light guiding our understanding. Black and white yields to the color that defines A Clash of Kings. And so now we see the truth hidden from us about how this society and this story works. Yielding won't save this knight any more than it did Lamy in the Riverlands. This moment is also a microcosm of Tyrion's story in particular. He tries to do justice on an individual level, but the wildfire that he himself unleashed shows him the truth. He has mm. contributed to bloodshed and societal decay. Tyrion throws back the knight's hand at a visceral horror and perhaps also out of guilt for what he's done. All the knight can do is sob the word yield, insisting that the words still carry weight, that the songs and stories were true, even as the evidence to the contrary bleeds out around him. Hmm. It is difficult to accept the brutality of man and the indifference of God. Even as this nameless knight dies, he still just wants to believe.
0: That's so well said, man, And and I... Uh, agree that it's that, that George does does a wonderful job of, of contrasting how, how Tyrion is feeling jubilant alive for the first time willing to accept his own body and you know feel alive and, and yet part of that life is in, in taking the lives of others and you know this 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 scene with with the night is, is, is so evocative of. Of many things, and, and I think like you make a great point about how it's the token of submission. It's it's these this idea that the rules still apply in some way, and yet they they don't actually apply to to this guy. You know, there's a sense where I was as I was listening to, you, I was thinking about it in terms of like something like a paper shield. You know, something that doesn't actually defend you, doesn't actually save your life. This this offering of the gauntlet, but yet people still cling to it because it's better than the alternative of accepting that. You're gonna die. And this guy is seemingly definitely going to die out here on on the north shore of the Blackwater, mm-hmm. despite his belief till the very end that the rules can still apply to him. It's it's powerful stuff and, and really, really well said. And so, amidst all of this, Surveillance Swan's party joins with Tyrion and he points out that things are about to become much, much worse for the Lannisters. So when we talked about this back in Tyrion 13. Tyrion notes that his wildfire plan had not gone off without a hitch, as the wildfire spread unevenly and many of Stannis's ships escaped. Recall too how Davos talked about how tightly the ships were packed together as they entered the Blackwater Rush. Tyrion had the wildfire go up right at the bowen to do the most impact to that fleet in order to destroy it, or render it incapable of, of operation. The unintended consequence is that all of those ships that were packed up so tight together were good in combat and effective, But now they've formed a bridge of ships that stretches from the south to the north bank of the Blackwater. And Stannis' men are now crossing that burning bridge of ships, meaning that the original idea of denying Stannis the ships to cross the river is now null and void. Maybe not totally null and void. As far as bridges go, this bridge is less the Golden Gate and more of a quote-unquote sinking, fiery, creaking, and shifting bridge, which might burst apart at any moment. Lovely. And yet Stannis' men are crossing it despite the danger. So, you know me, as far as I overthink and overanalyze things, this is one of those spots where I wrestle whether this was a directed movement by, by ordered by Stannis or one of his subordinate commanders, uh, or whether it's just these individual knights and soldiers taking the initiative to cross the river. Given that Tyrion notes that it's hundreds of men crossing, I kind of do, whether the, do wonder whether this order did come from the top from Stannis. And at the same time holy shit these dudes are crossing a burning bridge of ships with one knight even trying to get his horse to race across to try and win one for the gipper. I mean Stannis <laughs> you know you know it, it's an early beat of this Asha line that I quote all the time from a Dance with Dragons about how the lords might doubt Stannis but the common men had faith in their king. For his part Tyrion is overcome with the, with the heroism. He looks at these guys he's like wow that that's intense dude. And, and, you know, it's kind of a good beat because he realizes the heroism of his enemy. Though he does think they should try and go and kill them now that they're crossing this bridge of ships.
1: We may as well, he thinks, "Eh, while we're here, may as well take care of those guys. Every step of the way, George pairs Tyrion's growing battle fever and the evolving stakes of the fight with imagery to match. A Clash of Kings has been a story told in colors. And this is the climactic moment for the protagonist of the book. So Tyrion fourteen sears the visuals into your mind. Bael Swan's white cloak has been saturated with smoke and soaked in blood. All the purity gone. The battling black and white swans of his heraldry stand out. The duality of man, the blurring borders of war, like the black and white innermost doors of the House of the Undying. Balin points Tyrion, he guides Tyrion's attention to the river, and so he guides our attention there as well. The river is a riotous rainbow of death. Black water, boiling red blood, geysers of flame, the sky reflecting red and orange and green like divine light. It's an expert fusion of realism and impressionism. The intestinal churn of medieval combat comes together with a very painterly display of the elements. The ethos behind this aesthetic is George's understanding of war as an idealized state achieved through the basest of means. His most sublime artistic achievement so far is made of mud, blood, guts, and screams. Hmm. The burning bridge of boats is a perfect statement of purpose. Our more evolved sensibilities flinch from the sheer horror of this but our lizard brains go, (laughs) fuck yeah. That's why action movies are what they are. Along the same lines, the Baratheon men crossing the Burning Bridge are framed as being both unbelievably brave and unbelievably dumb. (laughs) Tyrion's own reaction speaks to this irreducible duality. He's both sickened and giddy. He admires those men, and now he rides forth to kill them. In the crucible of war, rational structures are forced into contact with the irrational and the unknown, captured in the image of the burning bridge. Tyrion metaphorically burned bridges with the wildfire, and now he pays for it.
0: He really does, and you know, as, as you're talking about like that kind of lizard brain thing, I, I think about the opening, was it Apocalypse Now, where you have the opening of the napalm explosions that are going up, and the way at the same time you're looking at it And you're like, wow, that's fucking metal as fuck right there. And at the same time, you're watching a jungle being like life just being consumed by this fire. That's a great
1: comparison. I I was thinking that actually while we're reading this. I think that's great.
0: I I think that's what George is going. I mean, George is one of his, in addition to comic books, another of his inspirations is obviously cinema, as he's talked about several times. And I can imagine Apocalypse Now being one of those uh, cinematic masterpieces which inspired some of the storytelling we see here on the Blackwater. Oh, yeah. So, So, oh, yeah. So good. So the Lancers charge into the mass of Stannis's bravest coming at them. Balon Swan loses his horse and then Tyrion loses his. Again, George opts for a dreamy impressionism in describing this particular part of the battle. Tyrion kills his horse after it lames. He somehow grabs a spear and kills and wounds more Baratheons. Mandanmore and Balon Swan fight back to back with Tyrion. Now Tyrion sees that these two Kingsguard make the battle a dance as they kill away at this mass of Valerian spearmen. Even here, George wants us to be aware of the class distinctions in the fighting styles and armor of the Kingsguard versus the Valerians, and of course, versus Tyrion too. These two Kingsguard knights can twirl around in a dance because they've been brought up in arms from an early age, and their gilded white armor protects them, making them nigh invincible. No such luck for these likely small folk Valerians. Remember Septon Maribel talking about how they would thrust a spear into the arms of a small folk peasant and order him into, into, into the army. Kind of, you could see these guys as being what Maribel talks about later in the Feast for Crows. So Tyrion does also contrast the dance to himself, noting that he's clumsy and awkward. The subtle distinction is similar to what, kind of what we saw with Cersei before. Tyrion is contrasting himself to Jamie, another man who has learned the sword when Tyrion did not, because Tywin did not allow him to learn that. More chaos more, more chaos ensues with Lancer trebuchets targeting the bridge of ships. A naked man falls and bursts above Tyrion's head. And I think that's very likely to be one of the antler men that Joffrey is currently flinging bravely from behind the walls of King's Landing. That's probably why that particular image is, is here. That's an antler man that's been tossed over the walls.
1: I think it's perfectly appropriate that chaos takes over. Like you have Tyrion's glorious ride and his statement of purpose. And I've become the half man and I am secure with myself and the stars love me. And then it ends with him charging headlong into the burning bridge. And as George puts it, madness followed, which I think is just Mm. a great way of capturing. It's a great way of George saying what happens to Tyrion now is impossible to describe fully. Like even me coming up with this fictional universe, I can't convey what's going on because that's what being in the thick of battle is like. It's just ahead of your mind. Tyrion's linear thought process fragments. He can't really internalize what's happening. And George represents that as a stream of images, highlighted by grace notes of sheer obscenity. The scream of the horse, the rush of its blood across Tyrion's chest, and yeah, an antler man falling from the sky. Holy shit.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Every step of the way, Tyrion is covered in blood to remind him and us of the cost of his actions. It's all been for Joffrey, as you were saying earlier. And now Joffrey is catapulting men into the battle to literally cover Tyrion hmm. in the blood of his sins. I think this is one of those cases where subtlety is not called for. You need to very bluntly <laughs> hammer home, Tyrion, this is what you've been working for. I mean, as you said, the wonder remains, as well as the terror. I think George is trying to keep that balance of reminding, you know, of, of battle as this visual spectacle and this catharsis. The white knights of the Kingsguard are there to embody combat as a dance. That's how Tyrion puts it, it's a martial art. The Tyrion's own killing is a clumsy thing. As he says, I love the detail that he just grabs a dude's leg and flips him over the side of the boat. <laughs> like that's really effective, especially for someone of Tyrion's size, but it is not the kind of thing you write about in the songs about the battle. That's more what Mandon Moore and Baelin One are doing with the dance, not just grabbing a dude's leg and flipping him over. Life has become brutish, random, and short, and the aura of majesty and agency has become somewhat eroded.
0: I agreed, and, and, you know, I, I think about things like, you know, John Connington in, in A Dance with Dragons talking about how when he was a young knight, he hated archers and thought they were ignoble savages out on the battlefield because he was a knight out on the battlefield. But now he knows better and because he's able he knows that war is just for killing. And that's what he's about right there. And I think that's what Tyrion is sort of representing here at the Battle of the Blackwater at this stage. So the artillery becomes and proves ineffective as the bridge of ships starts to tear away, which is Great news for the Lannisters! Suddenly, Stannis does not have a link between the south and the north shores of the Blackwater, but it's shitty news for Tyrion as he slides into the Blackwater proper. The ship lists, which means it tilts to one side so severely that Tyrion is forced to climb up it like a mountain. The ship then turns, which disorients Tyrion. He reorients himself by using a landmark, namely the Red Keep, and then looks at the south bank of the Blackwater and sees that there's fighting on that side too. Strange, weird. And this is really clever on George's part because he uses Tyrion's confusion and dream-like state to obscure what's going on south of the Blackwater. Namely, Tywin and the Tyrells have arrived to take Stannis in the rear, as will be revealed in Sansa 7.
1: It's another instance of the fog of war serving to obscure the rigid binaries that the war is supposedly all about. The sides are literally switching place in Tyrion's perspective, and he can't recognize his own deliverance when it comes. Like, Ser Dantos will say to Sansa, oh, imagine them with all of their knights and the banners, but he can only say that because he's imagining it, because he wasn't there. For Tyrion, in the middle of it, ironically, it doesn't make any sense at all.
0: Right, and I mean, it's, when you you actually, Tyrion's brief visit, like, visage of the uh, the battle is not knights and banners, but as a shield wall forming and breaking and cavalry charging into it, so not nearly as glorious as Dantos Light will make it out in in Sansa 7. But then the listing, twisting ship slams into another boat, and Tyrion hears the voice of salvation, or doom. So, Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings is one, as we've talked about over and over again, where he spends the entirety of his story propping up his monstrous nephew, keeping him in power, and protecting King's Landing, especially the elites, from the horrors of Stannis. So it's only natural that his art culminates here with getting reported by nearly getting fragged by one of those elites. Mm -hmm. The voice is Mandon Moore aboard the next vessel over. The ships slam together and Mandon Moore offers his hand. It's the wrong hand though. It's the left hand he's offering and Tyrion knows that something is wrong about that. Is that symbolism on George's part? Is Tyrion the wrong hand here where Tywin is the true hand of the king? Of the true king? Still, Tyrion's feeling that something is wrong probably saves his life as Mandamore brings his sword down on Tyrion with his right hand as Tyrion is flinching away. I think Mandamore likely thought that he could cut Tyrion's head off. Instead, it takes him just below the eye and cuts his nose off. Tyrion falls into the black water, his eyes and mouth filling with blood and water. He grabs a hold of an oar and somehow hoists himself onto the deck of a ship. He rolls over onto his back and sees all the horrific, horrible beauty of green and orange flame between the stars. And then Mandon Moore obscures his view. Now, George does a lot of great writing. This is one of those scenes that's never going to be featured in a best of George's George R. Martin's writing, but I love this way that George writes Mandon Moore because it's fucking chilling. The night was a white steel shadow, his eyes shining darkly behind his helm. Remember at the start of this chapter where Mandan Moore's eyes are compared as being dead and he's listless and Tyrion's like, I'm going to war with this motherfucker. God, this worst guy in the world. But here his eyes are shining. He loves this because like Ilan Payne from Sansa 6, Mandan Moore is all about this killing and not the justice or injustice of war. It feels good to him as he puts the sword point against Tyrion's neck. It's also chilling because this is Tyrion's narrative payoff in a clash of kings. All that fucking work that he put up to prop his shit awful family, this is his denouement. George wants us to feel ambiguous about Tyrion's clash arc, and I think he succeeds by showing us that Tyrion has attempted small amounts of justice, but is ultimately propping up a bad king and propagating lots of large amounts of injustice. But here, George wants us to know that everything is still rotten. And he treats Tyrion like the frog and Mandamore like the scorpion from the Scorpion and the Frog parable. It's in Mandamore's nature and the nobility at large's nature to lash out at those they deem unworthy due to societal, or in Tyrion's case, physical defect. And now that they've squeezed as much juice as they can from Tyrion, he can now be discarded.
1: Mm, that's beautifully said, sir. I think that, you know it's, it's exactly right. As, as Tyrion has clammed his way to the heart of power, he's encountered. This kind of death wish turned on him that, that, that strips him of all that power, so even as he's surrounded by this this huge fire explosion he created and is looking at how beautiful it is, he's, he's about to suffer. Tyrion is being swept downriver towards his own hellish trap. The protagonist of this book about power is about to die as a result of his own master plan. And even when his power seems suddenly to save him, with a Kingsguard knight calling out, My lord! <laughs> and holding his hand, it almost gets him killed. Mandon Moore appears at first to be the very soul of chivalry, risking his life to pull Tyrion back from the brink. Tyrion comes close to falling for it. But there's something off. Again, George's use of color is at its best. The yellow and green of fire, the red of blood, the black water, which only emphasizes Tyrion's realization that one visual detail doesn't add up. Moore is using his left hand. As you say, it's an ironic image given Tyrion's role as acting hand, which is about (laughs) to yield to Tywin, the new hand who just arrived. It also speaks to the hidden and traitorous nature of what Moore is doing. Everything is reversed. The right hand becomes the left, and the guardian becomes the assassin. As with the Baratheon knight and his hand earlier, this moment is all about the surface appearance of this society and the stories it tells itself, versus the reality of what it is like to take and hold power in Westeros. The appearance is Mandon more as the savior, a literal white knight. The reality is his sword slashing across Tyrion's face. This is Tyrion's downfall. Tyrion's arc in this book has unfolded in a contrapuntal fashion to Ned's arc in book one. He rides into King's Landing determined to learn from his predecessor's downfall, And we as readers are engaged in the same process. Thinking about them as contrapuntal melodies within the Song of Ice and Fire, well, that means Tyrion's chapters should ultimately harmonize with Ned's. It's the same story, told through a slanted mirror. Tyrion makes his own versions of Ned's mistakes, the Wheel of Time filtered through his own fears and desires and backstories. Ned gave away his own men and gambled on Littlefinger to his doom. Tyrion sent away his clansmen and is saved only by Pod, who he tried to send back at the start of the battle. Hmm. So is he really in control of any of this? Ned also had 15 chapters in his book, and in his 14th chapter, he experienced his downfall in the throne room. He too had a blade turned on him by someone he considered an ally, Littlefinger in that case. Tyrion makes it to the next book alive, of course, which Ned didn't. Hmm. But for all that Tyrion is a more cutthroat, ambitious politician than Ned, Tyrion's survival doesn't have much to do with his own decisions. He lives because he pulled back at the last second. That's all the difference between him and Ned, and Tyrion admits he doesn't know why he did it. Was it because he saw the trickery at work, making him wiser than Ned who was fooled by Littlefinger? Or was it just because he saw the sword, which could (laughs) have happened to anybody? Tyrion will never know, partially because his face was subsequently sliced apart, but also because it happened so quick quickly, instinctively, in the stress of combat. Either way, Tyrion has been exposed to the bitter reality beneath the white cloak and the rainbow of fire. Men are meat. There's a great quote from Naked Lunch. All agents defect and all resistors sell out. That's the sad truth. A writer lives the sad truth like anyone else. The only difference is he files a report on it.
0: I love that. That's, that's awesome. And I think, you know, the the Ned-Tyrion parallels are, are very intentional, especially when, you, when you're when you doing like a reread podcast like that we're doing here, because we can definitely see, similar to Danny and Cersei being paralleled in Feast of Crows and A Dance with Dragons, Ned and Tyrion operate similarly with even the same number of chapters between A Game of Thrones and, and A Clash of Kings. And both make the same sorts of mistakes not in totality but in terms of 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 them trusting a little bit too much in their last names and their power and being you know betrayed by someone on on the inside and that's uh it's something that that makes the that you do ultimately wonder like who ultimately won out was Tyrion win out because he survives to a, to a storm of swords and a dance with dragons and the winds of winter maybe i mean Ned's though legacy lives on in the Mm -hmm. form of his, the mountain clansmen continuing to press his, his daughter's, what they think is his daughter's safety and survival against the Boltons in a Dance of Dragons. I do ultimately think that we are seeing a cynical view of politics from George here, depicting the end of Tyrion's, the climax of Tyrion's story in a Clash of Kings. But as always, George balances the cynicism with his romantic heart. Because just before Mandan Moore can press the point of his sword into Tyrion's neck, the unlikeliest of heroes enters stage left. Podrick Payne, Tyrion's squire and the least of house pain. Remember, he's the guy that Tywin spared because he actually had the name of House of Payne. No other reason besides that. Pushes Mandan Moore over the side of the ship and saves Tyrion. I, I love that Podrick Payne saves Tyrion Lannister here at the, at the climax of Tyrion's story. And yet George then goes back to that melancholy, to that heartbreak, because it's heartbreaking that Tyrion first thinks that Jamie. Jamie saved him. Because who else would save Tyrion except for his, his big bro, Jamie? Tyrion's void is one that he's internalized, how the world sees him and thinks that the only person who actually loves him is his brother Jamie. How wrenching it is in a storm of swords that Tyrion's faith that the one person who loves him will be ripped to shreds by Jamie's revelation about Tysha. Blood fills Tyrion's mouth as Podrick Payne keeps Tyrion safe. Seemingly, the the story here is that the least of these save Tyrion from the greatest of these. George closes Tyrion's chapter on a cliffhanger about whether he lives or dies. Although we can be fairly sure because, again, this is a reread podcast that Tyrion will survive to the next chapter, to the next book, then the next book, and the next book thereafter.
1: Really well said about how George balances this moment. This This whole chapter has been about colliding opposites. The two sides of the battle get confused, the two sides of the river get confused, the battle is both glorious and grotesque, the style is both grounded and impressionistic. In the middle of all this, Tyrion gets one moment on his back to admire the balls of fire streaking like celestial objects in flight across the sky. He's the lord of both creation and destruction, killing thousands to birth a beauty that is now about to claim him as well. And then... As you say, Mandan is annihilated by his opposite. Podrick is a squire rather than a knight. He is burdened by emotion rather than empty of it. He is loyal to Tyrion rather than selling him out. Podrick and Mandan rode out on either side of him, and they even have alliterative names in common, MM versus PP. Hmm. George restores romanticism right after ripping it away, finding it within an, within an unlikely source, and so framing it as earned rather than merely performed. Podrick Payne doesn't need the white cloak and the sir by his name to do the right thing. He just did the right thing. Tyrion makes it out of this chapter, but I agree about the lingering heartbreak in his assumption that no one but Jaime would even bother to save him. Who else would think my life was Hmm. even worth keeping around? Tyrion is going to wake up in Tywin's world, a world in which he is once again all alone. And so Podrick has saved his body, but cannot save his soul.
0: That's beautifully said, and I agree. And I think Podrick Payne is going to be one of the first people that Tyrion is going to encounter in his final Clash of Kings chapter. He's still standing side by side with Tyrion, and that no, it won't ultimately be Jamie Lannister who was there to save Tyrion. It'll be Podrick Payne, and that'll continue going forward. So I think that about wraps up for the depth portion of both Sansa Six and Tyrion Fourteen. Transitioning over to foreshadowing groundwork. Let's go back to Sansa and talk a little bit more about Cersei.
1: So Cersei is described as having eyes of wildfire by Sansa in this chapter. And it's easy to forget when you're first time reading A Clash of Kings that Cersei is the one who ordered wildfire production to start up again. Because Tyrion so smoothly and quickly takes it over. And he is the one, (laughs) of course, associated with the, the major wildfire trap in the battle. But it was Cersei who ordered the production. And as the series continues, Cersei is going to be more and more into wildfire. I don't know if George already had the specifics in mind, but I think he even I think he knew in A Clash of Kings. I'm going to have Tyrion play with the wildfire for now, but Cersei is the one who has this almost like I don't know spiritual attachment to it.
0: <laughs> I it, Jamie like kind of compares it to like a sexual thing mm-hmm. in, in A Feast yeah, for exactly. Crows. Where he's watching Cersei as as she burns the Tower of the Hand with wildfire, and she sees and he sees like the fire in her eyes, and he's like, "Oh God, I'm, mm-hmm. I I see Eris the Second Targaryen all over again in the form of my sister." And yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm with you in that I'm not sure that George necessarily have all the specifics planned out. Although I can likely see him having this idea as a gardener, as he as he likes to write, being like, "I think Cersei and wildfire are going to be more connected down the sure. road." I'm just gonna guard my way to get there. And I think he does it in a, in a great way when we get to a feast for crows and we'll see how that pans out in the winds of winter for sure.
1: So Sansa says in this chapter that if she is ever queen, she will rule through love. If I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me. And, uh um, that indeed is going to come true if season eight proves to be prophetic in this regard. That Sansa will eventually work her way to the position of queen in the north and will rule in a kind of the more balanced ways you're describing Ned of, about using fear and love in equal proportion as needed. So I think Sansa will hopefully learn these lessons uh, in in that in that way.
0: I think you're right, and this is one of those points. Th- this one is not as debated as some of the other endpoints from from season eight, whether sure. they'll mirror what happens in the show, but. This one feels very much like a George thing that George has been crafting her arc to be specifically ruling as as queen of the north at, in the future of, of the story. And I think that's likely how her, her arc is going to close at the end of A Dream of Spring. I, I, I think it's it's really good that we have Sansa like learning, like I was talking about before, about having like a heroic you know, origin story in the form of like contrasting yourself to Cersei. As well as saying, as well as kind of like creating space verse for, for our own form of rule in the future as Queen of the North of ruling through love. And I think it's, again, it's a very powerful moment in this chapter to Clash of Kings. And I think it's also illuminatory for who Sansa is going to be as Queen of the North. And I think that's wonderful. It's great. I can't wait to see that just a few years down the road from when the Dream of Spring comes out. So finally, for foreshadowing groundwork. So. Podrick Payne always searching for Tyrion to help slash rescue him. That becomes a major theme in A Feast for Crows and Brienne's arc as Podrick Payne chases as Patrick Payne chases after Brienne in hopes of finding Tyrion. Now, at this point, George was not planning on Brienne becoming a point of view character. That's something that happened in the process of him writing what he thought was a Dance of Dragons that became a Feast for Crows. But I do think that George went back to the work he started with Tyrion and Podrick in The Clash of Kings and made that one of the features of Brienne's arc. And it's one of those sad moments. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact wording where, where Podrick is talking about Tyrion and how like he abandoned him or something like that. Right, but- I
1: was a squire, but he left me. Think is, is yeah. what the line is. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, obviously, those the details of the character interactions with Brienne, I don't think we're in George's mind yet. But Podrick is a really e- easy character to plug into those situations because he's he's very simple. Some folks in the chair were comparing him to just kind of earlier fantasy protagonists of kind of you know being stumbling along and not being able to articulate yourself properly, but having a, a good heart and always looking out right. for those around you. And that's Podrick. But you know, he's in the position of of no one around him really caring about that. So he just has to kind get by as best he can, and he'll find his new uh, his new patron, so to speak, with Brienne rather than Tyrion. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, shifting into our theory and discussion portion of the episode, there's an obvious <laughs> uh, candidate for uh, for topic for uh, for Tyrion fourteen specifically. We have the big climax of Tyrion's arc in this book, where Mandan Moore betrays him, slices his face open, almost kills him. Tyrion has to recover from that and have a painful. Return to consciousness in the Storm of Swords when he finds that all his power has been stripped away from him. But the question persists in the Storm of Swords and has yet to be answered explicitly in the series so far. And that question, of course, is who ordered Mandon Moore to assassinate Tyrion Lannister? (laughs) Who who took the hit out on the acting hand of the king? Now, there are three major candidates that are generally put forward to answer this question. Uh, Cersei, Joffrey, and Littlefinger. Of the three <laughs> major candidates, I think Cersei is the least likely. Tyrion assumes it's her. Like, he spends t- a lot of time in Storm of Swords thinking, I know, Amanda Morbis, the queen's creature. I know Cersei ordered be killed. <laughs> uh, so the fact that George is, like, making it that blatant probably suggests that it's not actually Cersei. Cersei also never thinks about this as a POV. I understand that's that, that's not, like, damning evidence. Like, you know, Ned also never directly thinks about John being his, you know, his uh, his nephew instead of his son. But I think if George wanted to resolve this or hint strongly that it was Cersei, he would have Cersei think something vaguely in this direction. But there's nothing there. Right. Moreover, Tyrion currently holds Tommen as a hostage against her, or so she thinks. She took Aliaia to have a hostage against him. I don't think it makes a super amount of sense. That, you know, she she also thinks uh, she's, you know, it just doesn't add up with her behavior on the whole, I think. Littlefinger is more likely. I think even I might be even willing to say George does intend for us to conclude with uh, Littlefinger as the as the initiator of the assassination attempt because of some (laughs) some strong evidence you'll bring up in a second. But there are there are a couple factors that give me pause about Littlefinger. I, I don't buy the idea that Mandon Moore acted in Vardis Egan's name. This is something that comes up with this idea that Mandon Moore comes from the Vale and maybe he was, you know, he's that makes him he's in with Littlefinger and also liked Vardis Egan because that comes up in the early in the Clash of Kings. But Mandon Moore's whole characterization is that he is a corpse-like man. He lacks any feelings or motivations of his own. He has no friends, as Varys notes. <laughs> his whole life was as a hired killer. So I don't think he would act for personal vengeance. And that, in my opinion, makes him an unlikely kind of cat's ball for Littlefinger. Unlike the Kettleblacks, Mandan doesn't seem to be looking to move up. He is already where he wants to be, so what could Littlefinger use as leverage on him? So that leads me to Joffrey. Mandan Moore is in his king guard. Joffrey wants revenge on Tyrion for slapping him during the riot. And if you take this assassination attempt away, Joffrey really never tries to make g- good on that. And there is a terrific irony at work here, I think, given how hard... Tyrion is working to keep joffrey safe during the battle but what if it was joffrey who tried to get him killed for me this mm. would sum up the contradictions of, of Tyrion's arc in this book that he's working so hard for joffrey but then joffrey ungratefully wanted to, to snatch it all away from him so
0: that I could definitely yeah good
1: well i, I was no, gonna no. say that leaves me in kind of a team joffrey direction but i'm eager to hear about why i'm wrong well
0: i i, I think that's a really great way of putting it like it, it's that whole thing i was talking about at the end of, uh, of of the arc that you know Tyrion spent his entire arc attempting to prop Joffrey up. And of course, the scorpion comes back and stabs Tyrion at the end in the form of, of man and, Boar, and and operating as, as, Joffrey's, uh, as Joffrey's agent or cat's ball, so to speak. And I also agree that Cersei is unlikely. And another character that's that another fourth very distant possibility is Varys. And I think he's even less likely, likely than Cersei or Joffrey. I think Varys, his plans for... Tyrion in an Aegon-centric direction down the road. Or at least a quote-unquote divide the Lannisters plan by playing Tyrion and Cersei off against each other down the road uh, in order to prop up Aegon when he arrives at Westeros. And I also do see the case for Joffrey as he has motivation and leverage over men and more to order the deed. And if we take this show as any indication, we have season three's The Climb. has Tyrion confronting Cersei over Moore, and the impression we're left from the show is that Joffrey was the one who was behind the deed. But as I am, oh, so contrarian, I'm going to be arguing for Littlefinger here. And I am basing my argument from Galenix's, uh, who's a Redditor, uh, argument from 2013, which is a really good post. You can see as a patron if you read our show notes, the link to that there. I agree with you that Moore probably wasn't seeking to avenge Vardis Egan because he has no friends and is a corpse and is only interested in Vardis insofar as Tyrion just threatens Mandan by saying, hey, this is Bronn. He killed Varus. You remember him? Are you going to let me through the door back in Tyrion's first chapter in the Clash of Kings? Well, what I think is a strong motivation, though, is that Tyrion pricks Moore's pride. Mm-hmm. And in steps Littlefinger with a means to satiate said wounded pride. Littlefinger and Mandanmore do both hail from the veil, as you were talking about, and we learn that Mandan and Littlefinger were both brought to court by Jon Arryn in the Storm of Swords. But those are, are tertiary points. The, ma- the main point, I think, that to me favors Littlefinger over the other candidates is that Littlefinger has every reason to try to kill Tyrion. For one, Littlefinger is quite aware that Tyrion knows that Littlefinger tried to frame him for the cat's ball dagger against Bran's life. As we discussed back in Tyrion's fourth chapter in The Clash of Kings, Tyrion tells Littlefinger that he'll give Lysa Aaron John Aaron's true killer. Well, that makes Littlefinger set up. Very interested. He thinks that maybe Tyrion is cued in on his role in murdering John Arryn, or at least that Tyrion is on his trail. And that makes him very nervous in one of those rare moments where, where Littlefinger is kind of taken by surprise by events. Moreover, Tyrion also played Littlefinger falsely in feigning to gift him Harrenhal in exchange for keeping his secret about where he plans to send Marcella to. And we also have this whole thing where Littlefinger's MO is trying to kill Tyrion on the sly. Remember how T- Littlefinger falsely claimed that the Caswell dagger was Tyrion's? Recall that later in A Storm of Swords, Littlefinger will all but frame Tyrion in Joffrey's murder. Framing or trying to kill Tyrion is a hashtag mood for Littlefinger. He uses cat's balls to get it done once in a while, and he has a good reason, in his own mind at least, to try and do that. Now, the one weakness of the theory is how does Littlefinger communicate demanded more when he's outside of King's Landing? For that, I would note that Littlefinger is either in communication with Damsa's holler or has left him instructions in his wake after he leaves King's Landing. I think maybe the same would apply between Littlefinger and Manded Boar, that he's either somehow in touch with him via ravens or birds, or more likely has left him instructions to kill Tyrion in the midst of battle and make it look like an accident. So these are reasons why I think Littlefinger is the more likely candidate for the person who is behind Manded Boar's killing. There is another possibility too, which is that Manded Moore just tried to kill Tyrion because he likes killing, and this is his his attempt to try and kill this guy who who pricked his own pride without any idea of there being someone behind the killing. I, I do think it ultimately is Littlefinger, but I do see strong cases for Joffrey or for a self-motivated killing ultimately. And, you know, maybe the next time you see George R. R. Martin at a convention, you ask him because I can't imagine this particular event will have much plot bearing down the road for The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring, and George might be willing to answer it. Maybe. If
1: we'll he's, see. If he's in a good enough mood. No, I think I think right. you make a a strong coherent case for Littlefinger. And I also think thinking about like the Ned parallels I was talking about earlier, it's just so, you know, neat that like, you know, you have neat in the, not in like a, that's neat sense, but like neat in like a, <laughs> you know, very precise well-constructed way that you would have in Ned's 14th chapter, you have Littlefinger holding a knife to his throat. And then Tyrion's 14th chapter you have Littlefinger also holding a knife to his throat, but through a cat's paw right. via Mandon Moore. That is such a strong parallel. It, it's hard for me to, to ignore that. And I think you make the case that, yeah, maybe Mandon Moore, cause I was having difficulty thinking about Mandon Moore as the kind of person who Littlefinger hangs out with, you know, and, and gets in with. <laughs> right. Like, like you look at the kettle blacks, like those are Littlefinger's kinds of people. Like, you know, these, these mm-hmm. obvious, like scheming, sleazy, untwistworthy guys are always trying to move up. And Mandon Moore is just like, he's just like a block of flesh with no personality. But I think what you, that the idea that it might have happened after Tyrion pricked his pride, I think that makes sense to me, because then because he's also pricked Littlefinger's pride, so that goes hand in hand. And Littlefinger now he starts looking for a way to get at Tyrion. Okay, who else is Tyrion pissed off? Oh, Mandon Moore <laughs> doesn't like him. Okay, I'm gonna talk to Mandon Moore. That scenario <laughs> works for me better than Mandon Moore has always been in Littlefinger's pocket. Uh, so I think I think that adds up. Um, and, uh, and you know we already have Joffrey for the for the cat's paw against Bran. We don't need Joffrey to be behind everything. So, yeah, I could, I, I think I could see it being Littlefinger. But as you say, I don't, you know, this, the, the, the biggest impact of this on Tyrion ends up just being that he's taken out of the battle for a while. So, right. and not out of the battle, of the aftermath of the battle and can't control his own legacy. And so we'll get into in Storm of Swords, there's something just kind of sad and, and useless about it. he's like, I'm going to come up with proof that it was Cersei, like it, like it matters. Like, exactly. you know, whoever it was that kind of got what they wanted, they got you out of commission. And that he's still alive doesn't change the fact that he's, he has this, uh, this downfall in power
0: i absolutely agree and i think it's you know uh, man More attempting to kill Tyrion is it's not like a central i mean it's it's central to like Tyrion because like he loses his nose and that becomes a part of his identity going forward because mm-hmm. he's no longer just the half man he's now deformed and he's even uglier than he was to begin with and so that does have major like Character residences for Tyrion Lannister, but doesn't have a lot of plot residences about who was behind Manda Moore's attempt to kill to kill Tyrion. But it's still, it's, it's, it's a fun. Theory and discussion that we will have until George confirms it one way or the other. Maybe, maybe it does have some sort of implications down the road. Who knows? Who, who knows about a, why, why George would, would withhold that that reveal to us? And uh,
1: it all depends what Tyrion cares about when he gets back to Westeros, right? Like, there's so right. many reasons for him to be angry. you are going to be like he's going to take down Cersei for for despising and mistreating him all his life, and then he's going to go. Oh, and another thing, Mandon Moore. Don't think I've forgotten about that. <laughs> there's a lot on Tyrion's revenge list. We'll see what he gets to.
0: I absolutely agree so folks it's so great to be back with you all but I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Sansa 6 and Tyrion 14 as always you know I, I say this uh, I try to, try to I say this every single time like wrote, like repeating like thanks so much for listening but seriously dude thank you so much for listening and thank you for, for sticking with us and I bye. It's, it's good to be back and, and to be back with you all and uh, it's awesome so thank you all so much for listening as always, if you have the chance please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts.
1: You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com.
0: And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire
1: We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon: Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers; Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolf'swood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets; Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood; Sir Way, of course; Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bullen De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderly, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Nereful Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mirror Lady Mirror Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil. Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Rankler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the, end of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy, and our newest High Lord and High Lady, Sydney of House Co., Princess of the fr- Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, and random fierce protector of cripples bastards and broken things so so thank you as always to our high lords and ladies and especially welcome to our new cindy of house co and random
0: absolutely thank you folks so much for your your support as high lords and ladies and of course welcome to Sydney and and random i've appreciated all the messages you've been sending on on patreon it's been it's been fun to read those and and welcome to to our to the the ranks of the high lords and high ladies It's, it's so much fun so join us next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 7 in which the battle reaches its climax and Sandra Clegane is scary, also romantic, and also very, very, very drunk.
1: All of the above and more. Sandra Clegane, he's, he's a man of contrasts, as we'll get into more with a, a Clash of Kings Sansa 7, the wonderful, emotional, visual climax of the Battle of Blackwater. And then we're out, folks, so hope you hope, hope you've enjoyed the Blackwater. We certainly have
0: i have enjoyed it spending every single moment with you sir and with all you folks who've been listening so it's been so much fun being in the Blackwater. Oh, sad face one chapter left to go and then we're back in fucking carth anyways <laughs> um so thank you so much for listening thank you so much for all of our supporters and thank you so much to all of you who have watched and we'll see you all next week for a clash of kings sansa seven